Welcome to the After the Battle Campfire, presented by the Modern Ronin. I'm your host, Tommy Chase, and I'll be your guide through the stories that are about to be told. On today's episode of After the Battle Campfire, we talk again with Shep Reimer. We finish his story. Leaving the recon community in the special operations world to become an instructor at Naval Hospital Corps School San Antonio, and trying his hand at PA school. We talk about the trials and tribulations he went through during both being an instructor and going to school. We also talk about dealing with mental health and the toll that long periods of service gives us. We also talk about what he's doing now. So I hope you guys enjoy and welcome back Shep Reimer. All right, we're back for part two with Shep. Hey, buddy. How you been? Doing good. What's new? Uh, not much. Went hunting yesterday and got nothing. Hey, good. Getting skunked is still a good day. I got surrounded by deer, though. Like, really? No, no shit. North, south, east, and west. That's cool. It was kind of creepy. I felt like they were planning an ambush. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's uh, one day they're going to turn on us. I think so. Their uh, their populations are getting so big that I mean they're starting to become like pigs. I think soon there's not even going to be a hunting season. I would like to say that when it comes to bucks, but the ranch I'm going down to, um, the trail cams we have out, no, we've seen four bucks out of six trail cams. Yeah, I'm I'm just talking about the doe population. They're so oh, yeah, they're they're out of control. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> I think I think I'm sitting on like 600 acres that I can use and maybe 20 or 30 does and four or five bucks. Oh, that's not even that many does. I figured you'd well, have. That's what we've seen oh, on camera. So I'm assuming there's probably a lot more than that. Yeah, probably four or five times that amount. Yep. So we're back. Uh, we had a really good conversation, but you had to go coach a game. Did you guys yeah. win? We did. Yep, twenty six to six. So, so is this high school or like Pop Warner? No, it's neither one. There's a there's a because it's Texas, of course. There's a league called TIFA, Texas Youth Football Association, and they're independent, nonprofit, owned by people. Believe it or not, each team. Oh wow! It covers the age groups that don't have uh, tackle football. So starting at six up to middle school. So they have different, uh, they, they combine them by two years. So six and seven year olds are the little tykes. They have flag before that for the five and four year olds. There's a flag team, then there's the tykes and then the, the rookies are a little bit older. They're eight to 10 and then the 11 and 12 year olds are uh, the junior team. And it, it gets them ready. So these are, these are parents that are serious about their kids going to. Like going somewhere? Going somewhere, yeah. They're pretty competitive. So, uh, but it's good for me. I enjoy it. Little kids are fun. I, I, t- I uh, coach those six and seven year olds. So, so are your, cats. Are your kids doing it? No, I have all girls, man. I have yeah. all girls. I saw something in news a few weeks ago that there was a female kicker somewhere. No, we have, uh, we have three girls. Uh, I have a girl on my team and we have a girl playing, believe it or not, defensive end on the rookies team 
So at this age, the girls are bigger than the boys. A lot. Are they really? Yeah. yeah. Girls, girls grow faster. So that's true. Uh, they, they seem to enjoy it. They don't get as much playing time, but uh, they're there. I think it's cool. Hey, that's cool. You know, whatever, yeah. whatever works. I do want to go back in time. Speaking of uh, age, because there's one thing I didn't ask you that I keep hearing on some of the podcasts I listen to when they talk to guys, especially with your background. Okay. Um, pre 9-11, doing the recon shit. You, you know, a mission was once in a great, great, great while, if even that. I know uh, you talked about the opportunity in Kosovo with okay. uh, just normal Marines. Correct. So when 9-11 happened, did you guys think it was going to be over quick? Or do you expect a 20-year war? Or was, like, what was the mentality? Like, we got to go, get out there and get some now before... The shit gets over just because the recent past of how quick we had done stuff. Uh, well, initially, I know that the company, again, I was a roper at the time. So uh, I wasn't privy to a lot of the meetings and talks that were going on. But I do know that there was a significant focus towards shifting um, what our training was. Uh, at that point, we were on 18 month cycle where you'd get back from a mu rotation because that's what we um, deploy on was a, uh, a marine expeditionary unit, and so that the the recon side they called it a mu sock, and, and and in order for it to be sock quality, you had to have an element that could go out there and like rescue people from an embassy and um, you know do certain things. So so the, the recon the force recon guys made it that sock element. Uh, and so you would, de you would deploy on the ship after a certain amount of workup period, six months of working up. And that was heavily focused on amphibious operations, you know, locking out of submarines, um, doing uh, small boat, small craft work, dive work, uh, taking soundings, all the things that you would need to do for, uh, to get Marines ashore if they needed to come ashore. Uh, Traditional you know. recon work. That's right. And it wasn't so there was this heavy focus that moved after 9-11 from from doing a lot of that rapidly away from all amphibious training to desert warfare that was immediate like we started heading out to uh yuma uh to do a lot of um, jumps into the desert we started well not me i was still a roper but that's what the company was doing um and uh, of course, we would assist with all the logistics and packing and heavy lifting and with the trucks. You know, that was our, our contribution yeah. at the time. <laughs> but I mean, go, go back all that gear. <laughs> <laughs> but I meant going, knowing that you were going through the pipeline, um, did you ever worry that you may miss, that you're going to miss the big battle? That was a huge worry for, for all of us. Um, and I know that sounds weird because it's like, who wants to go to war? But you know, it's, for guys that are in and doing stuff like that, you know, you up until that point in history, you got like once a generation chance, right? So it was like, oh man, we're gonna be in this community and there's gonna be all these dudes with stories except us, you know. Yeah. We're not we're gonna miss it because we're gonna be training. Cause you know, we were expecting uh more of like a desert storm type of scenario where where we go you know, find out who the bad guys are, take the bad guys out, you know. Uh, and it didn't seem like it was going to turn into a, this large scale operation that would last for 20 years. 
But there's no way in anybody's mind I think they could predict that. I, I have often been caught saying that Desert Storm was the worst thing that happened to our military. You may be right about that, actually. Because it set expectations so high that we could take anyone down in a week, basically, after an air campaign. Right. on the ground and here we are in Afghanistan, what we talked about last time, I'm nearly 20 years later. Yes. Pretty, pretty much anyone who is enlisted today in 2001, who is retirement eligible today in 2020, has never seen a day of peace. Ever. Ever. And in, in, their, in their entire service. And that's right. And I, I mean, it's one of the reasons that I, I, I think that our military, for one, is going to be okay, because we still have a population of people that are um, willing to volunteer, knowing that they're going to war. And I think that's pretty special, you know, so. Well, you and I both were at Fort Sam, uh, which is where we basically ended it, was you coming to core school, PA school. Um, can you imagine that back pre 9-11, that was an open base, like people could take the Walters Gate to get out to Harry Warsbach, just general yeah population Absolutely. there was a lot of places like that just waltzing around look at the museum you know uh go walk out there for lunch there was a lot of businesses right outside that that gate that catered to to the folks on base now it's so hard to get around there even nobody goes there anymore yeah so. well yeah that i mean i i grew up around camp pendleton um even as a kid i was down there a lot and it, there was never that you're going to just randomly drive through Pendleton. Not that there's well, an easy way to randomly drive through Pendleton. Oh, you're right about that. I think there's a difference though, because Pendleton is set up um, uh, in different areas, and you know each area has their own um, battalion or whatever. And and so, and I think they do that on purpose. It would be difficult to take any Marine Corps base just because it's set up like that. Yeah. You have to take it almost like city states. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I will tell you, though, being down in Balboa and then having to go like up to my mom's house in Orange County, anytime I left after three, Pendleton was my favorite shortcut going north on five. I bet. You have that DOD ID card and you're like, get up at uh, Oceanside and cut through the base and save yeah, three hours. Get to see wildlife out there. It's yeah, great. that's true. Um, so tell me about your choice or was it a choice? to come here to do the core school. Well, the PA part of it was, but staying no, here. I wasn't ready. I didn't have the prereqs completed. So the, the, the choice to come to Fort Sam, so it just so happened that uh, I was rolling up on a, uh, another set of orders. And normally up to that point, we were just um, doing what we call a PCA or uh, a move. It's basically a, a set of orders that changes you from one section of the base to the other. And so this saves the government money because they can keep you on the same base, but they can put you under a different um, unit identification code. And that's what you need for a, for a PCS move or whatever. Uh, but then again, they're not spending money on moving your household goods or anything like that. They're just literally sending you across base. So you check out of a command one day and check into a command the next I, day. I, again, like Pendleton. Pendleton, I, if I remember right, it's like 18 miles in length and like 15 miles wide. And you have all these square miles. It is, it's, yeah. it's pretty it's enormous. It's big. It's not nearly as big as say Fort Hood or uh, Fort uh, Carson, somewhere like that. But uh, it's pretty big for Southern California. That's right. 
it'll never LA and San Diego will never be one city because yeah. of that. Thank God for that. Yes. Uh, but what I was going to say is, so you can be in the northernmost area as a Marine or a corpsman and never leave the base in 20 years because you may be sent to the southernmost area. That's correct. enough commands. Yeah. Yeah, there's various commands that you could go to, headquarters. Well, not for me. There was only really three places to go for me on the base. But they would right. just... Well, once you got your NEC. That's right. Uh but yes, you could stay there for an extended period of time. And that's how basically the Marine Corps is getting away with not uh, budget friendly moves. They would just keep Marines on the same coast. And then if they had to, they would take from the pool from uh, California and send them to Okinawa. Yeah, or out to 29 Palms once in a while. Yes, that's right. There, that was kind of our uh, redheaded stepchild out there in 29 Palms. Which, which speaking of huge, that base is like, I think the third largest base in the country yeah it's pretty cool I but mean, it's smallest you know, they use it for uh dropping ordnance yeah so it's it's big for a reason yeah small small in population but giant but huge in square mileage yes so you get here uh first what was your take on getting to texas in the middle of i guess you came right as core school was moving down here on top of everything else well that's that yeah i, I didn't answer that question well I, kind of tangent with uh the right so in 2005 president george w um signed a base realignment and closure act where he wanted to consolidate anything that, in terms of training in the military that could be consolidated to try to save uh dollars so the, they determined that medical training could be consolidated for um, and I don't know who, who the person was that thought that was wise to put combat medics along with uh, Air Force med techs or whatever, but they, they thought it'd be a good idea to put all the enlisted medical training in one place. And so because AMED Center and School was in Fort Sam Houston, that was the decision was made to put everything in Fort Sam Houston. So the uh, remaining Corman School in Great Lakes was shuttering and moving to Fort Sam Houston. So there was actually a transition period where there was classes in both, both places. But uh, anyway, uh, along with core school always came a position where there was recruiting done for the next generation of recon corpsmen. As, as we talked about before, there was less than a hundred of us. So, and there's no ascension pipeline coming from the street. You can't get orders like the SEALs do or SF or anybody else. Yeah, I was going to so, say that. So this isn't, this is to, so people know, this isn't you're a recruiter per se. Oh. You're, you're not out trying to get people to join the Navy to become a recon corpsman. Oh. You're pulling from what basically the fittest and Essentially, yes, yeah, and, and I, I cut you off, I'm sorry. I, essentially, uh, we were talking about, um, people that dropped out of BUDS. There's a lot of people that dropped out of BUDS that now had to um, find another job. And so um, not that this was a second or anything, it was just another opportunity for a lot of them. Uh, they didn't know about it initially. Many, many people didn't, have never heard of recon corpsman, um, recon medic, what is that, you know? You never hear about it because there's no movies or anything. So, and that we're such a small community. So they would get to core school and then they'd find out about this program and uh, um, anyway, essentially we would, we would try to prepare them, get them orders. We'd have a before and after 
program. Uh, so there was always a billet attached to uh, the core school, wherever it was, whether it was Orlando or uh, San Diego or, well, I don't know if there was an Orlando, actually. I, I might be mistaken about that. No, no, there was only two. So it was San Diego at, out of Balboa and then Great Mistake. I mean, Lakes. Yes, that's right. <laughs> anyway, it just so happened that it, it coordinated with me coming up on orders. And because there was so much activity with moving over and becoming Marine Special Operations Battalion within the few years before that, there were so many things happening within our community as well as the recon marine community. So, so many changes. Nobody really wanted anything to do with that billet. And so it was kind of an opportunity that, uh, that I, I took, not necessarily because I thought it would be a great duty station, but it was aligning with my personal goals at the time. So that, that's why I took it. How did the wife feel about I oh, guess knowing that you were going to be home more for, for starters. No, nah, she was very excited because she knew that this was now finally going to be a place where I wasn't deploying at least for three years when I took the orders, three year, three year orders, and that uh, which we could begin our personal goals, which is starting a family. So, but this is weird because a lot of Navy wives don't have the experience she did. She grew up in Southern California and then I married her. And then I was stationed at Camp Pendleton. So for the first, what, 12 years of our, our life together, she never moved. Yeah. <laughs> Which a lot, of, a lot of military wives would be like, what? <laughs> anyway, uh, this was her first uh, actual duty station move. So it's kind of a big deal for her, especially moving from California to Texas. That was some culture shock. So you were what, at 14, 15 years at that time? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Right around 14. Yeah. When you got here, did you know staying in Texas or? No, no, not, that wasn't my initial, especially after the first year that, that duty station, standing up a new duty station for one is very difficult for anyone that doesn't know that. And then to do it, uh, not just with your service, but to try to fight between three services on how you're going to do things ended up being uh, really one of the more challenging things in my entire career. It was good for me though. I learned a lot of skills that I would have not have had had it not been for that. But I didn't know, uh, you know, initially my thought process was, okay, we're going to get this started. Then I'm going to go back to my community and uh, become a senior leader in my community and finish things out uh, that way. That was and my. That didn't quite happen. So let's talk, I, if you're, if you're okay with it, let's talk about what happened with the, the whole PA idea. Right. So I, initially I wasn't thinking about PA when I first moved here, but then the PA school uh, is uh, here in Fort Sam Houston. Which and is so, actually a military uh, physician assistant. Yes. But you become a full fledged, no bullshit physician assistant. Absolutely. It mirrors or uh, actually exceeds some of the schools that are out in the civilian world. It's, it's quite a renowned um, uh, program. They're always in the top 50 uh, ranked every year. And uh, that's, those are rankings that are based on the student feedback. So, um, so they, they do an excellent job. And, act, and after having been a student there, I can say that it is definitely one of the most professional courses I've ever been, ever been to. 
but it's run entirely by active duty. Uh, everybody that's a student, or excuse me, an instructor there, uh, just like with 18 Delta, is either a uh, senior uh, PA or a doctor, or, or some kind of, like for example, uh, the microbiology course that is uh, that we had is run by literally the one of the nation's top microbiologists, the person that they, they call, um, like the person that they went to when the Ebola outbreak happened. He was front center on that um, for the military. Um, so that, that, that's the kind of quality of instructor that they have. Uh, pharmacology, they have a pharmacologist, you know, come in. It's not like you get uh, cheated on anything. It's a, it's a legitimate uh, education. And I didn't know that the, it was here at the time, but when I got here and I started doing a tour of the base and, you know, getting myself familiar with things, uh, someone invited me over there and took a tour of, it was, a, there was a one, there was a recon guy that was going through the course and uh, um, Scott Dombrowski. And he invited me and he said, Hey, you got to come over and check out this school. So I did. And they planted the seed like, Hey, maybe this can be the next phase. Cause this, this gives me a legitimate career out when I leave too. Um, Cause you know, at that point uh, now there's more of a bridge, but at that point, there's not, not really a great transition for what, I was doing, unless you went and got your paramedic license, which, in, in all honesty, was below our our um, you know level yeah. of practice in the military. I, I'm sorry to say it. Maybe I'm being a little too cocky about being a corpsman, but I think a paramedic's license is below an 8404's level of almost. Ability. You can do so much in the military. Um, there's no liability, so there's a greater opportunities for doctors and nurses to train you to do things uh, in austere environments that you would not be allowed to do because of lawyers. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I think it all comes down to the medical officer that's working for you, especially if you're with a battalion or a regiment. And how mo and how motivated the corpsman was. Yeah. Uh, if, if you showed proficiency in, a, um, you know, something or you wanted to, to go beyond, the doctors usually were willing to do so and trust you with it as long as you could show them that you were uh, good at it, proficient at it, knew what you were talking about, and you weren't going to endanger the life of somebody uh, with whatever they were they were teaching you or whatever they were prescribing for you to give to. Because everything was under them, just like a PA, just like a nurse practitioner, corpsman operate under under the license of a doctor. It's, yeah. it's actually similar. Being a corpsman is like being a PA in that regard. Exactly. So you check it out and you say, this is for me? Well, not, not so much. It wasn't just, hey, I'm going to go to PA school. You know, there's a series of events that unfolded uh, between uh, core school, making rank, uh, and then finding out that maybe I had a little bit too much war in me and I, I needed to take, take a break for a minute and get reset as a human being. Uh, that that all kind of persuaded my, you know, persuaded me to to go for the program, and I think it was a good decision initially. Uh, so I started working on my prereqs, which I actually I had done a lot of college previous to coming through the pipeline. So um, we talked about that University of Maryland campus. So I had gotten a lot of my prereqs done, um, and they were still within ten years. So they were they were you know 
you have to be have college credits within ten year mark. For I was going to ask, is that the requirement? Ten years within is. ten years. Yeah. So I didn't have to retake a lot of things. I just had to get my biochemistry, OCAM, uh, some maths, uh, statistics, some of those like nasty classes. <laughs> I had to take those to get to get into the course. And then uh, the beautiful thing about the military course is that you don't have to have a bachelor's degree going into it because they're going to take your prereqs, um, which how it's a, it almost equals a bachelor's almost up to. But really what they're focusing on is we, we want you to have certain classes. We don't care about underwater basket weaving for you to get a, a bachelor's degree. We'd rather have you have pertinent classes that pertain to becoming a PA. So if you get those done, we'll do the rest while you're in school. And so uh, at the time that I went, which was in 2013, um, the, the program was still a master's program. So you didn't graduate with a bachelor's, it was actually a master's. Uh, there was enough credits gained. Uh, and then you had, to, you had to do a thesis paper uh, for that master's at the end, et cetera. Uh, and it was a master's program. Since then, they've had to compete with all the other people that are becoming doctors and that program has now moved to a, a doctorate degree. So I don't know that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know that the prereqs are the same to get into that now. I would have to look that up. But how much uh, is it a longer program now? It Well, it is. It's 18 months. But what was it before? It was a year. Oh. It was a year, uh, but that was before my time. And it was just too stressful. Uh, they had a couple of incidents with uh, students taking their lives. And they decided, well, we can space this out a little bit longer. The content is pretty stressful. And so packing it into a year was the academic portion that is. It was a year of academics and then a year of um, clinical rotations. And so uh, they spaced the academics out to 18 months, which is the portion I completed for the most part, except for the last three months. And then, uh, and then you'd move on to clinical rotations. I mean, I've, I've watched a couple friends who, three, I think, who have gone through the prereqs and the organic chemistry. And all three of them are extremely smart, but apparently there's something about organic chemistry that tears smart people apart. It does. It's a special kind of chemistry. And if you don't, if you don't get it, it'll, it'll kill yeah. you. And so to, to think you're doing all of that in 12 months, yeah, that's pretty stressful. Then even 18 months seems like a taking water through a fire hose. No, it is. It's absolutely crazy. Uh, that was, I had to switch gears and become a student. And I literally, that's all I did. I mean, well, and that's the advantage. You don't have a job on active duty while you're doing this. Your job is to be a student. So that's why you apply for the program. They only take, we had 11 sailors it's a tri-service program. So we had 11 sailors in my class for that, for that class rotation. So let, let's back up one little brief thing that um, I don't know if we touched on in the last one, but just so people understand, there are only three services in the military. Space Force does not count, no matter how much it wants to be a service. It does not count right now that have any medical personnel. That's the Army, the Air Force, and the Marines. I mean, the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy. And the Coast Guard. Well, they don't count either. <laughs> they're, they're Homeland Security. 
They are homeland security. They do have Corman though. Yeah, I know. Yeah, no, I know. I'm I'm kidding. But I mean, as far as the three big, the three of the four big services. Yes, three: um, Army, Navy, Air Force. Air Force. And it's because the Marines fall under us. Yes. Uh, I was talking to my friend Dana for the show. She was an RP. So she, same thing. They don't have chaplains in the Marines because they rely on us. Oh, they, were, they get all their support from the Navy. So I just wanted to clarify that because you said it was a tri-service. So we understood. So the people who didn't know understand that, you know, the Marines will never go to any of these programs per se. No, there has been an odd Marine that has been authorized by a command that will pay that command will pay for them to go to a specialized school but it's not their occupation it is not their occupation and it's usually up to that commander who's chosen for a reason whether lack of personnel whatever so there have been an odd marine that have gone through a course but usually so so the pa program i do know that there have been marines that have been accepted to that but at the end and upon graduation they're changing services. Yeah. So what to one there's so there's no in um there's no marine, even if they did go through the program, that would stay a marine at the end of the no. program. No, there's no there's just no there's no billet for them anywhere in the Marine Corps as a medical individual. Let's face it, we don't trust them. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> just saying. Um, so what was the time gap between you arriving at Fort Sam? getting accepted into the PA program and what were you doing in between? So uh, in between I was doing uh, my job which was uh, getting to the pool at about 3 30 in the morning training those kids we talked about who were looking to uh, move on to special programs and I failed to mention there was three there was three of us that would, would train. I was going to ask you about that. Yes so there was going to be the the uh, potential recon corpsman the search and rescue corpsmen for the Navy, the ones that jump into the water and, and save people, uh, swim through big, huge waves. And then um, the dive, diving medical techs. And those people are the ones, uh, those folks go on to um, hard hat diving commands and they become experts at dive related injuries uh, as well as um, hard hat diving themselves. So those three groups of people would all gather in the mornings and in the evenings, uh, depending on the day and what, what section of school they were in, uh, but always in the mornings. And we would train them and then we would go to class. And um, we were also instructors. I was gonna ask, so were you on the podium yourself? We were absolutely. They didn't have enough instructors initially. They didn't bill it enough instructors. And so uh, we had actually written a whole program uh, to, to have our section on the side paralleling uh, this core school uh, curriculum, however, being alone and in our own area so that we could almost act like our students were ropers and get them in the mentality already of what to expect into the next phase if they were going to get orders. But uh, that fell through, and, and so we ended up having a facility built on the pool compound um, that, that was specifically for us that we could open and close. Um, and that was before and after school. Now, during the hours of school, um, and, and there were some dynamics that were involved in the, tri in the three services coming together. Nobody could decide who could be in charge. So, uh, <clears throat> 
excuse me, they, what they ended up coming up with is this organization called METSI, Medical Enlisted Training Campus. So, so the Medical Enlisted Training Campus was all three services in, uh, in the command structure. And so they determined what the schedule was gonna be like, what you, know, what you would do from day one to day X upon graduation, day 79 or whatever it was. And so uh, during the hours of eight o'clock to 4 p.m., we called it the METSI, owned the students. There was no, so the, the Navy couldn't grab a student and take them and do something with them. It was the first time I'd ever been anywhere. It, it, it provided huge challenges. To, for, to, to clarify, at this point in time, um, I don't know, I don't remember if the Army played, but the Air Force and the Navy had combined classrooms, right? So there were Air Force personnel in and Navy personnel intermixed in the actual classrooms, right? The, Navy, the Army was real smart. They, they, they were like, oh yeah, our ba base is already set up for it. We have AMED center and schools here. And then as soon as everybody moved, they were like, well, we're gonna not, um, we're gonna co-locate. So we'll be here with you, but we're not gonna be in class with you. But I had a feeling they planned that. Oh yeah, billions of dollars going to fix the base. Yeah. The, however, I agreed with their decision because the, the course that they have on Fort Sam is called their combat medicine uh, course. So the medics that are going through the combat medicine course are specifically like corpsmen going to the Marine Corps. Their focus is on austere environments, moving around with weight on their back, carrying any medical equipment that they uh, have on their back with them. They're not sitting through school. They've already done that somewhere else. Uh, to become a medic. So I actually agreed with that decision for them not to be in the same classes. It, it was completely different training than what well, initial yeah, we were receiving. I was always wondering what the thought process was because um, I don't know if you remember <laughs> Ryan Spears. He was one of the chiefs yeah. uh, fourth. Uh, he came from the Ranger side and had been a 60, what is it, 68 whiskey? 68 whiskey. And it's just a completely different set of um, skill sets. Like you just said that, why are we having, they, they don't cross compatible. They're not co cross compatible with basic corpsman or even for that matter, a basic uh, Air Force med tech. No, because that curriculum is focused on a lot of nursing skills, inpatient nursing, uh, learning uh, a lot of the civilian way of doing medicine. So what would have been the appropriate uh, Army MOS? Would have been their LVN program? Would have been the appropriate one if we were really going to do this right and have a cross-compatible? Uh, they have they have a basic med. Uh, well, no, they don't. That's that's the thing. That they're Army, they're so they, siloed. They really are. They don't. That, and I, that's why you and I agree that corpsmen are the best of the three services because they're given there were considered maybe the jack of all trades. We can do a little of this. You put us anywhere and we can kind of fit in and, and, and be good at it. But the army, you're right. They silo their, their and they're so huge. Call them yeah. the big green monster, you know, because the, they're so huge. They, they can afford to do that. Yeah. I mean, I had a, I, I had an HM2 when I came back in, in 2004, who came, he was an HM2, got out, went to the army, 
did the invasion, stayed an E5, got out, came back as an HM2 uh, on the reserve side. And he was saying, like, the army medics don't, the 68 whiskeys don't do anything on base. They no. go PME their vehicles. They help change oil on their on their ambulances. And if there's any medical issues, they're sent to the clinic. That's right. Which is just like, what? That's right. Yeah, and then the clinic is staffed. The Army's now gone to all civilian. Oh, have they? Um, or, well, on Fort Sam, it's unique because you got a lot of yeah. students. So there's a lot of students in training. And that's one of the places they go is, is to uh, the clinic to help, right? For sick call in the mornings, they call it cattle call because there's usually a ton of them out there. I mean, and on any given day, think about this. On any given day, there's 9,000 students training on Fort Sam. Are you serious? Yes. Between the Army, Navy, and Air Force, there's 9,000 students on a daily basis training there. And that's between all the schools. I'm not just talking about basic right. tech, Corman program. Or, but that's, that's a... It's a college campus. That, that's e, e nothings to E3s, maybe some fleet returnee, an occasional E4, E5. And yeah, E5 is usually the, the, the highest rank because that's about the time you can come back and change what we used to call the NEC or Navy Enlisted Code. In uh, uh, so so, for example, if you're a corpsman and you're in a you're you're in a job you don't like, you can at, at some point down the road, um, we each community has their own enlisted technical leader that keeps track of the numbers. Let's say let's just use lab techs for example. There's a, there's a certain amount of lab techs the Navy needs, and if they go over that number and you don't like being a lab tech, you can go become something else. And they have to authorize that because the Navy trained you. They pay the money, so they want to use you for that capacity. So you've done your time as a lab tech, and now you want to cross over and become something else. So you would have an occasional fleet returnee that was maybe an E5 or an E6, rarely, that was in a specialized school, like maybe cardiovascular tech. Yeah, or, or someone cross-rating completely from... Yes, correct. It was like a, you know an RP or an HT, because nobody wants to mess around with Hey, don't don't rag on HTs. No, you gotta love them. I wouldn't <laughs> want their job though. I never want their job. Being a plumber on a ship, guys, is not that well, is not a glamorous job. I I, th I think you knew her well. Uh, my CMC who uh, pinned on who was over my chief pinning, Kathy Hansen. Yes. Yeah. It, uh, this woman, it was an amazing leader, in my opinion. Um, she oversaw Navy Medicine West as a former hall tech, never a corpsman. Yeah, well, you know, like you said, and that's sure. what made it. Yeah. You don't necessarily have to have the skills of people way down in the chain. If uh, I was just having this discussion with somebody uh, on Facebook the other day, they felt like uh, you, you needed to know, um, you know, deck plate leadership has been taken to a level that is almost impossible for any senior senior uh, enlisted to deal with anymore. Explain Can't what that means. Yeah, so deck plate leadership, and this is a concept that they, they, they train you on when you become an E7 in the Navy. And so for, for the Navy, the transition into senior leadership is at the E7 mark. Whereas in the Army and the Marine Corps and the Air Force even, it's an E6. So it's a big deal. Um, you're selected by a board there's no more tests. You take a test, but a board has to select you 
to become a chief. And uh, that's a big deal. You go through this whole transition season. And the idea of deck plate leadership is that you're not sitting on your butt just expecting your minions to do all the work, that you're being a servant leader. You're getting out, you know your people, you know what they're doing on a daily basis. You see their problems with your own eyes. Uh, you're in the mix. Um, and, and I think that, I mean, if we go all the way back to the days of Stephen Covey, you know, seven highly, seven highly effective traits of a leader or this, that, and the other, that concept is in all leadership, but the Navy took it and just really decided that for a while they had a problem where chiefs were, were not getting out of the office and they were going to implement this program. Great idea. Problem is it's been taken to the extreme now. Anytime there's a problem, that's the first word thrown out or first phrase is, oh, that plate leadership, that means the leadership's not doing their job. And I, my issue and my problem with that is that if you get to a senior enough position, uh, you're, you don't get a chance all the time to be several commands down from you looking at what your people, in fact, they might be in Colorado and you're at Fort Sam and you still own them. There's no way that you can effectively have eyes on every single thing that happens on a daily basis. You have to have uh, and delegate that to uh, leaders down the chain too. Yeah. So um, anyway, I got on a tangent, but. No, no, no. It's a good one because I, I agree with you. I've seen, I follow a lot of, I still stay active. You know me, um, follow a lot of Navy groups and there's an issue right now with, and we're going to get to a COVID question in a bit, uh, but with the lockdowns and with, I think it's almost every A school, you're stuck on base. We talked about this at the end of the yes. last one, where there's suicide issues or other disciplinary issues going on. And I hate saying the younger generation doesn't do this because of this, but there is, it's hard to communicate with some people. And if they're telling you all's good, if they're telling you all's good, you have to take their word for it the best you can correct you you yes deck plate leadership is important knowing what's going on with your sailors or if you are a business person knowing what's going on with your business is very important but if the people can't feel like they can tell you or they just don't want to tell you what's really going on there's only so much you can do there's only so much you can do yes but see the problem is is that, that it's taken the the peers of your your, your peers at the senior leadership level if something goes wrong, of course, all eyes are on you then. Yeah. It's exactly. your fault. It must be your fault because something went wrong. Um, and I, it's it's tough. There, there's a lot of dynamics to go into the human condition. Yeah. And especially when you've got, let's, let's face it, the people coming into the Navy in 2020 are very different than the people that came in in 1988. Yeah. There's just there's a generational gap, there's technological gaps, there's the way of thinking about the world gaps, everything's at their fingertips, all the information, they have opinions about everything. Um, and, and I'm not saying that they're bad. Um, what I'm saying is, it's difficult for the people that came in in 1988 and experienced what they did to have a lot of empathy sometimes, or know how to communicate I actually took uh, a generation generational communication class um, after after I had some counseling 
at first because the first year I, I was very challenged by the students. And um, especially coming from the community I was in, the, um, oh, by the way, for those of you viewing this, I have all girls and Halloween is, is tomorrow. And they decided that I needed this for my, my clown costume. So don't be thinking a certain way about me. Uh, we all think a certain way about you, Shep. <laughs> but uh, um, I, after a few incidents and then me having to go see senior leadership about, you know, the way that I was speaking to students, uh, I decided to take that course and it opened my eyes quite a bit to the way that, and that was, we're talking about millennials at that point. Now we're moving on even past millennials. We're talking about Generation Z. And that's something I've not even studied. So that's a whole new dynamic because they are completely, um, from what I understand, Generation Z is completely surrounded and thinks through technology. Yeah, and I, that's what I was going to bring up next. So I know sometime between probably when, you, because you came in after me. So around the time that you came in to 2004, they had tried to push computer-based learning for Corman. Yes. I think probably wrong time. And I will say this, when it comes to being a Corman where you're directly interacting with patients, and there's a lot of nonverbal cues you have to pick up on, um, especially in your community, because I have, though I was not in your community, I have treated many people in your community. Uh, you're still, you're like the adopted. I know. But my, my point is, 80% of the Navy, I think, could do great with computer-based training. Probably uh, so. Nuke techs, I would rather have them do computer-based training. Actually, you're right. Yes. Um, it's a very stressful school. And yeah, this, I agree. This generation and these things have made it so easy. Um, whereas with medicine in general, I, I think that there's a lot that is probably, and I have this tendency to maybe think too highly of the skills that I learned. I look at medicine as flow chart for 90% of it. A it, lot of it, it's just based on the standard of care for, yeah. for whatever's new. Sprained ankle. Evolving, obviously. Yeah. But like ortho issues, does this move this way? Does it move that way? If it doesn't move that way, then do this. That's right. It's an but, algorithm. But the bedside manner the heritage, because that's the one thing that I don't know if they're teaching at core school now, or if they taught it when you were there because of the air force combination. But I would say a quarter of each class that I attended when I was in core school was dedicated to how superior corpsmen were to any other medical enlisted community, how we had gotten the most medal of honors during world war two, yeah. how, we have been probably the most consistent medical enlisted community since um, since a Revolutionary War, basically, because we were on the ships as apothecary yep. mates and pharmacy mates all the way up to right now. There are special operations, ID, special operations uh, IDCs and SARC IDCs out there right now in Afghanistan and who knows where else correct doing all of this so i mean how much did heritage play into how you taught there was a block uh when so that was talked about it was always such a valued uh part of core school to all, all of us corpsmen um in fact 
part of our initial training, our initial block was history. So, and I think that's why a lot of us are so proud because they focused on, you know, where, where we'd come from, the shoulders that we stood on, what people before us had done. And, and it was emphasized, look, you're stepping into a community that's not just, you know, one service, it's two services. And, and it's got, like you said, it's got all these medals, people have done all these things. Um, and not only are they corpsmen, but they become uh, essentially sometimes when needed, they become Marines, they become firefighters on ships, they become whatever they're needed to be. And so it, it's, it was, it's heavily focused. Uh, the first block of course school when I went through now, having said that, because we talked about the METSI, yeah, the medical enlisted training campus. And that was the, that were, that was the headquarters where they were going to decide what, what all of us would learn. And, and that process, um, I can't even tell you the amount of, of yelling that went into, I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I, I saw 06 is like fisticuffs over stuff when we were putting that program together because everybody wanted it their way because they thought it was the best way possible. And uh, the compromise when I first, when, the, when we first stood up the school, the, the Air Force med techs, in order to graduate, they had to become EMTs, nationally registered EMTs. So that was what B or EMTB? Um, the basic? Yes. Yeah. EMT, that's right. I was, I was trying to think, cause I think it's an intermediate now, but um, yes, EMTB. So, because everything in the Air Force was tied to the Community College of the Air Force, which means they had accredited that, like, yes, they had to. Er, they, you had to have certain. You couldn't just be some HM two come in or E five come in off a ship and go teach. You had to have a certain. That's right, and this was the one of the big challenges and problems that we were having trying to come together, is that the Air Force had already established an accredited community college. And all of their programs were tied into this thing. They would get credits going towards the, um, and they were ahead of the other services on this. I'll give them credit for that, um, <clears throat> getting people degrees. However, uh, if I didn't have a degree and I was coming in teaching their med techs, that meant that the accreditation process was under scrutiny. You know, the accrediting body, which was the same as any other college, <clears throat> was gonna say, wait a minute, that person can't be an instructor because they don't meet the criteria for accreditation purposes. And, and not only that, but you guys uh, don't have anything that you leave with that says that you're certified on the civilian side. That's another piece to accreditation that nobody really thinks about. So the Air Force MedTech, in order for them to be accredited and receive accredited credits towards their community college degree, they had to leave the school with a piece of paper that said, I am able to do X when I work. And that's the same with all Air Force schools. So uh, that EMTB was, was what that piece of paper was for Air Force MedTech. So there was a week in, be in between the A block and the B block where they had to do all of their skills for EMTB, which as you know, there's a, uh, there's a test and then there's a bunch of critical stations that you have to do. <clears throat> can you intubate or actually I don't even think intubation is part of it. Yeah. Uh, but like, it's, it's like triage or like um, T triple C stations. Yeah. I think it's like 
I don't even remember. Forgive me. But no, that, okay. during that week, corpsmen didn't need, weren't required to become EMTBs. In fact, the Navy didn't want to pay for it because it was quite costly. So they were not, they were giving them all the skills, but then it was up to uh, the individual. If they wanted to become an EMTB, they themselves could take the national registry test and pay the $70 or whatever it was. And a lot of corpsmen did it and, and got their EMTB because then they'd move on and start getting other things. But during that particular week, well, we would actually separate because corpsmen were sitting next to med techs in the same classroom because we were consolidated versus co-located like the army. We didn't have any green suitors in there. It was just um, the, because at the time we wore the blueberries. So green, green uh, suitors being uh, army. army. Yes. So uh, during that week, we, we would actually uh, segregate and that was when we had all Navy instructors teaching the, the history, the pride, um, you know, all, all of those things. We only got a week of it though, um, out of the whole 18 week process. So that was their attempt. Didn't work out very well. So let's go back to, again, cause we're still talking about you and core school. What was your day like getting up at 2.30? Right. I'd get up at, uh, well, actually I'd get up at 0.3 and be, and I lived probably 30 minutes from the base. So uh, I'd get there, get everything set up, get the building open, depending on what we were going to work on that day. Uh, well, and I had three, uh, two, uh, initially two other people with me. There was a dive med tech that was assigned there and there was a SAR, uh, search and rescue foreman instructors. So the three of us together uh, would show up and prepare and, and we would decide what do we need to work on with these guys uh, to get them ready. And sometimes we'd break out into uh, ability groups and, and, and stations where, you know, the SAR guys didn't necessarily need a certain skill set or whatever. Right. Um, so we wouldn't work on, on that with them. They would go with their guy. So, but but so how did you, how did you recruit? Like, how did you, at what point did you sit down uh, and question. So uh, we have, um, I think I might have a copy of it somewhere, um, but we had a video that we made. It was literally a, a, a professionally made video that the community paid for um, interviewing Starks in their different areas. There were people from I, I, I think I've seen it. Yeah, and it was a real basic overview of this is our job, this is what we do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then it showed the pipeline. And we would, uh, every single time that a, a class would school up, the first week was not the METSI time. It was administrative stuff. So for example, the Air Force had certain paperwork they needed their kids to fill out. The Navy had certain paperwork their kids needed to fill out. So the first week was kind of like, um, Hey, these are the rules. Sign this. You're not going to do this. You are going to do this. Um, hey, Air Force kids, fill out all your EMT paperwork because we need to send it in a month early. Blah 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 for your test. Well, during that period of time, we would gather everybody that that was in the class, and we would show them this video and give them a presentation. And say, hey, look, um, this is what we offer. This is what we do here in the mornings. If you're interested in these programs, um, some of them knew already coming in. Um, that that's why they became foreman. They were headed straight. They wanted those orders. Um, and then 
others had never heard of the program before and they would come up afterwards and ask questions. And uh, we, we, we called the program SOCP, which was Special Operations Corpsman Program. Uh, it was called the Dive Motivator Program in Great Lakes, but it was so geared towards uh, the SEALs. Um, and that was, that was prior to their transition into becoming SOs. They were still coming through course school. So, so uh, you know, the name now could fit because uh, Marines were now part of special operations. And, and basically all three of those elements were doing special, special things. Now, now, when I say special, I'm not talking about like they're better than anyone else. What I've met by that is they're highly trained in their one area. Well, I've, I've, I, I don't mean this to be, I, okay, yes, I do mean it to be derogatory to arrogant fucking seals, but I often remind them that uh, you are not special. Your job is a specialized job. It's a specialized job. Yeah. And in fact, that's you know, I'm lucky. They just didn't get hurt in training. Yeah. You know, that's the difference between being a seal and not being a seal a lot of the times. Yeah. Or it's not flagging thing. someone on the range. That's right. Or, that's right. Thank you. <laughs> Fundamentals. <laughs> yes. So um, I just got to ask, because I don't know why in my head I'm, I know that there are female DMTs. There are. And to me, what I know about dive med techs is they're corpsmen who went to dive med tech school and got their bubble for dive school. Putting them alongside SAR, SARS and SARCs seems a little overkill maybe would be the word um or is is their training pipeline as physically as intensive as it's not well neither is sar actually the, the most intensive pipeline was the recon corpsman. right i just figured so the guy jumping into the ocean and fighting some of those waves good squ good swim skills would be yes important. and well fins on too so we we set the standard, when we got together initially, we talked about it. We set the standard at the highest level because we figured if if uh, the DMTs and the SAR candidates went to school it, as in shape as the other guys, they were going to have no problem trying to pass what they needed to do. But like we said, we broke, we would break out. The, the SAR guys and the DMTs needed a lot more time in the water with fins on. Oh, okay. Uh, so we they focused heavily on that, especially the SAR guys. Um, and uh, the reality is, is that they had to tread water with a lot of weight. I'm sure people have, have looked at that movie with uh, Kevin Costner, et cetera, or whatever. Oh yeah, the the Coast Guard star guy. That's right. We tried um, uh, we tried to focus more in on training like that, water, drown proofing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas uh, some of the other guys needed to walk around with weight on their back a lot more. Uh, so. It, we did break out, um, but to specifically answer your question, you know, the the DMTs, you may not be aware of this, but they actually go through two Charlie. They go through the hard hat school along with their counterparts. Oh, do they? Okay, that they, I didn't know. Because they expect them to do that job until something goes wrong, and then they become... Okay, so it's almost like a, a corpsman on patrol. He's holding an M16, engaging until someone gets hurt and then that's right and people don't realize how in shape you have to be to wear that suit at depth it's very heavy and you have to move around against currents and stuff at night 
uh, mm. on the water and do work, do physical labor. So uh, until something goes wrong, they don't become a hyperbaric chamber tech um, until after their job is done. Oh, okay. so, it or not, they, they, they need to be in shape too. So it made sense to have them with us for sure. Definitely. Yeah. I see. I, I had no idea that they actually did. I thought they were still kind of siloed, just being medical support on the surface. It is. And their job really was to maintain uh, the equipment that surrounded the hyperbaric chambers. Oh, okay. Uh, so they had to be just as smart on all of the diving related issues as their, their counterparts. So they, they went through that hard hat school. They never go on to become uh, first class divers though. That when okay. they go through two Charlie, two Charlie is like the basic hard hat diver school. And then the pipeline for, for Corman in DMTs, and I'm not an expert on this. So please, yeah. if somebody corrects me, that's fine. But they split off and then they have to become IDCs before they can become a master chief in the, in the DMT world. Oh, okay. That There's makes no sense. path to master chief if you're not yeah. an IDC. Because there, there's, um, so we'll talk about that real quick. So during this week-long recruiting session that you guys had for, at the beginning of core school, was it just the SOC P guys or was it basically all the C schools got to come in and make their pitch? Like, hey, do you want to become a lab tech or an x-ray tech? Uh, they all had their time. They all had their time. Absolutely. So a lot of people did that. Now, there were some communities that were so overmanned, they didn't even bother with it because Unlike previously, where we graduated from Great Lakes, we would go to a follow-on command or straight to FMSS and to the Marines. Uh, most, again, consolidation, the idea was to save money. You now have the C schools or uh, more specialized schools for anybody that doesn't know what that is. Uh, becoming a corpsman was considered an A school. So it's an A skill set and then just like a doctor becomes a doctor and then they specialize as a cardiologist or ortho right. doctor, you go to a different technical school, which is considered a C school. All those C schools were also brought in to Fort Sam. So there was this huge shift to where more than half of the class would receive orders to C school straight out of Corman school. So you're talking HM for 15 minutes and then you're going to Correct. Wow. So, and this is part of the problem that they're having in the fleet now. See, they, they realized four or five years after that, that the product that they were getting, if they needed uh, augmentation, wasn't skilled like they were previously. Because now half of these kids went straight to lab tech school. And well, so lab techs found themselves in labs. That's all they do is play with machines and blood. Yeah, right. So, and they're great. They, we need them uh, or x-ray techs. They're taking x-rays all day long and we need them. But if for some reason we fall short out in the fleet and again, nobody could foresee 20 years of war, you are now sending x-ray techs out because technically the Navy expects you to be able to do your basic skill set at any point in time and your, your specialty is just a nice to have. Yeah. So if I'm sending you out there to augment Marines, I expect you to know what you're doing. Problem is 
I never got a chance to practice my skill other than the 18 weeks I was in school. Yeah, I had some friends that were biomed techs. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about the most detached people from medicine are the biomed techs. These guys, basically your EKGs, your IV, uh, what is it, drip calculator machines, machines. your vital signs machines, they were the ones who repaired them. They and uh, quite a few of them got augmented out to division and were they they all admitted they were shit shows for about the first month during workouts because I've been a I'm an HM1, so a first class petty officer in E6. And I haven't done medicine since I graduated biomed tech school when I was an HM3. And it's not really fair to those guys, right? Because they're basically glorified engineers. Yeah. I mean, I, I there's parts of me that there, there are seriously parts of me that wonder why they are in the hospital corpsman rate, not not to take away from them being corpsman, but like that to me just seems like that should be like an IS or an IT job. Yeah, well, I think some brilliant person in the past thought, well, if they're working on medical equipment, they should know about medicine so they understand it. But you and I know both know that that has yeah. nothing to do with it. It's circuit boards and code yeah. and they're... It's, I think you're right. I think in today's world, they don't need to be part of the medical. No, I, I, I can tell you this. So, uh, in the, on the reserve world, that is the, if you come in at 18, 19 years old and you want a hundred thousand dollar a year job, mm -hmm. become a corpsman, go to biomed tech school. And at least two of these guys who were reservists were like, yeah, the day that they graduated, there were recruiters there from big companies with $10,000 checks saying, Hey, are you a reservist? Yes, I am. Do you want a job? Here's a $10,000 bonus sign here. And we'll move you to Missouri or wherever we are. And yeah, Pfizer and all these corporations. One of the few jobs that's straight out of core school or out of your C school that you can actually go get a job. That's a one, my one complaint with the Navy. And as far as I know, even today, Transferring corpsman skills to the civilian world is why I am not in medicine. <laughs> so uh, I'll tell you, my friend, that uh, um, in recent years, because of the arguments that took place with uh, Air Force over accreditation, uh, it did become apparent to Big Navy that, hey, we have a problem with, we're not going to be competitive soon with the other services because they're all getting degrees and certifications for stuff. They can walk out of the, of the military and get a job. So within the last five to seven years, they've instituted programs um, and, and accredited, accredited, that's not even a word. They've, they've I'll go with, it. with the accreditation process with I think 100% of the C-schools. Good. If you're a lab tech, you take the national test at the end of your course and you're you're certified as a your curriculum is no different or i, I think it is different but it, it's it's up to the standard of and certified to a civilian lab tech so yeah, you can I think, walk out into the world and get a job i i think back when i came in um at least halfway through my enlistment there was four or five of the necs i know like nuke med tech advanced uh advanced lab tech those ones had the accreditation yes because they were so do now. Yeah. They've all come online. Now they don't know what to do with basic Corman. There's no, 
Give, give them an LVN. I mean, uh, we can uh, challenge uh, LVN out of core school with the year on the ward. Yeah, there's a lot of the nurses are against that. And that's the problem. Is don't run don't say the N word. You know, the thing is, is if we're going to be talking about Navy medicine, <sighs> talk about that because unfortunately they run Navy medicine. Until you get to, until you get to the FMF. That's right. Until you get to the FMF, but on the blue side, yeah, everything, all the decisions are made by nurse corps. So let's go back to, let's get back on our track and stop bashing <laughs> on nurses. Um, so as we see, you were doing the SOC P and instructing. And as you've stated, some issues with over war, um, over, I'm not afraid, I, not, not, not being over war, but over used in war. Um, did it start to affect the family? Here you are seeing your wife probably yeah. more than you have seen in 12 years, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this was a bad period of time for, for us. It was supposed to be glorious, right? We we're going to have kids. We were going to have all this time together. Uh, the problem was since I graduated, first of all, I went through the pipeline. I was gone. And then I graduated and right away, oh, I have two. And then it was like back to back, back to back to back. You were either in a cycle of coming home and cleaning gear and getting kind of put together in, an, in another platoon or another company or another whatever and, and getting ready to train or you were training to go or you were gone. And even when you were training to go at home, you were gone because those training packages were in Yuma or they were in Nevada or they were in Northern California or up near Barstow because uh, a lot of people don't realize but the environmentalists have turned Camp Pendleton into a wildlife reserve. So there's a lot of training that you cannot do on Camp Pendleton that you need to do to be prepared to go to the war with explosives and shooting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you go other places where it is allowed. And so, you know, here, here my wife was thinking I was going to be home more. Well, all of a sudden, I'm now leaving at 3.30 in the morning, which means I have to go to bed at a ridiculously early hour. If Otherwise, I'm not functional. I'm gone all day. I'm exhausted on the weekends. And uh, not to mention all the fighting that we did, uh, all this internal kind of anger I didn't know I had started to just bubble, bubble up, you know? And uh, it was the first time I had not had somewhere to go in 10 years. So it, it just kind of manifested itself. Now my wife knew, even she told, she t she'll tell you uh, to this day, she knew after the first appointment that I wasn't the same person. But then that just started to compound itself. Uh, war is a crazy thing. It's, it's an interesting animal that you navigate. And everybody navigates it a little bit differently. But we all come back. I think all of us come back changed from war. doesn't matter. Any man that's seen it or been a part of it, uh, even on the receiving end, like people that were on the base getting mortared, they had a different experience than I did. That was a different experience, but it was still it was still a wartime experience for them. And, uh, you know, so I had to process that. I don't think I ha ever had. Accepting, accepting the fact that you could die 
every single day and being okay with that. We talked about that earlier. You become numb, right? But then when you start to back away from it and you're not there dealing with that all the time, <laughs> those, those emotions that come with, I'm going to die, one of them being fear, you've suppressed that. And so all of those things start to come out and they come out in forms you don't expect them to. Um, you know, different people handle it differently. So, but, but I did, I had a hard, for a while I had a hard time and I, and it, I didn't want to admit it either. Uh, you know, the, our training model is to, is to rub some dirt on it and, and carry on, you know, yeah. you get hurt, pull security and drink water and, uh, you'll, you'll feel better tomorrow. So getting over my own self in order to get some help was the hardest thing. My wife was really instrumental in that. I'm very thankful she didn't leave me and, and was a support through that process because I, I was hard to deal with for a while. So you left you left an environment and not to harp on this any more than it needs to be, but I, I think it's important to talk about. You left from an environment where whether it was fellow corpsmen, sailors, or Marines all went through the exact same training you brc jump dive mm -hmm. uh, of course obviously the corpsmen went through 18 delta you guys had this shared experience much like the frogs everyone passes buds and you're not going to be a seal without passing buds so you have that shared experience then you show up in san antonio with a whole bunch of fleet guys who may or may not have ever been boots on the ground in a fob or on a hard base let alone um been outside a hospital and as far as I know, besides uh, our mutual friend that worked across the street at a reserve uh, battalion, there really wasn't a lot of guys coming from your community in the immediate area. Oh. That, did that play a big role, not having someone to talk to? Excuse me. It did. And not only that, some of you may laugh, but this was the first time in many years that I was now in an environment working with women. And that has, that has a whole dynamic in the workplace. When you take an all male workplace and insert women into it, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just telling you that there's, it changes the dynamic. I wasn't prepared for that. Uh, you know, and, and on top of that, you don't want to talk about nurses, but the nurses were running everything. And here we are, especially me, knowing what I had just come from multiple times, knowing where these kids are going to go when they leave, trying to get them prepared to, to do that job and having nurses that have no experience trying to put them in a box and, and hold me back from doing that. That was maddening. It was infuriating to me. In, in fact, I, and that's that is part of my problem was just the sheer anger towards this process that didn't seem to be functioning the way it needed to, to get kids prepared. It was more focused on making the Air Force happy with, with its accreditation issues than the fact that these damn kids were about to go meet war face-to-face -face as, as a 19-year-old. Yeah, because this is what, uh, during this period between you getting there and going to PA schools, what, 2007, eight timeframe? No, it's 2010, 11. 10-11? Was it that late? Damn. Yeah. So, I mean, in Afghanistan, everything was definitely igniting again. Absolutely. 
and then I, I think about that time we were looking at Syria starting to kick off a little bit and the formation of ISIS. Still in Iraq too. So yeah. uh, I know a lot of us get stuck with our identities sometimes. Uh, Navy flag, can't see it off camera, chief flag, and that's kind of become my identity to an extent. And I'll admit it, I still hold on to it. Um, for you, you had your wings in your dive bubble, you wore Marpat, and mm -hmm. now you come to core school and you're in these godforsaken, let me drown, you're never going to find me in the water, blue fucking camis. Did sure. that contribute at anything that you now had your identity stripped? The, the uniform that you had known since 2000, 2000. So now, now, that you're, now that I'm about to answer this, everybody's going to call bullshit on me because I'm wearing a star cat, right? Yeah. They're thinking, okay, he still identifies. I, you know, I, part of the reason I put this hat on today is for this. I don't know if you're going to put this video out or not, but. Um, of course I'm going to put it out. Yeah, I, I still have some some things like uh, that, that I identify with that make me proud of what I did. But I'll say this as a as a human being, I've never held on to something like that as a, um, a source of strength of who I was. Like I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but there's a lot of people that complained about it. Switching uniforms never bothered me. I I knew that was going to be the case, and it was like, well, whatever. This is the new uniform. I didn't. I didn't. For me, that was not taking something from me. I had already, and and again, uh, I you think you would. Did you think you would hang up the Marpats forever? No, I didn't at that point. I didn't. But it, see, they teach us in 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 our schools, and I think because of my upbringing and how diverse of a childhood I had, becoming a chameleon and knowing the room, and speaking to the room and being the room. Um, that's ingrained in the training that we have. Uh, and, I, and I think I was always good at that. Now was not the time for me to be alpha super dog. Th th I, was, I was in a new role. And I, I think mentally, I was prepared to accept that. So it was, I, was, I never felt like, yeah, I thought it was stupid. The uniform, the blueberry uniform was stupid. It always was stupid. Well, yeah, that, that, that's just, yeah. But I didn't feel like I was, I was, there was anything taken from me. In fact, um, don't get mad at me out there, Chief World, but I remember when I graduated or when I was selected for Chief and I was going through the process and that night when I was pinned or that day when I was pinned was like the biggest culminating moment in a lot of people's world. Um, but I remember thinking to myself, well, I already had my culmination moment when I graduated the pipeline. For me, that that was was a superior feeling to to, to putting on chief. So I, I guess I already had this sort of in, innate. Uh, now I lost it a little bit when I when I had to go talk to the head people, for sure. But it, but you specifically you asked about the uniform, and for me yeah. that wasn't that wasn't taking away from me. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, again, I'll go back to, you have a shared selection process that weeds out a lot of people. And I think that's why there's so many people who value the cheat process. I just value giving back. That's why I participate yes. even 10 I, years later. Um, that being said, I, you need to call me and get me involved in that. Dude. Uh, yeah. 
I, we'll we'll talk offline on that. But you yeah. did see you did see who I told you got selected this year. Yeah. Um, with all of that being said, where I was going with that was you have um, you went through the shared process again. I hate comparing you guys to the frogs, where there's when I went through the chief selection induction initiation, whatever the fuck it was called back then. Um, we did a golf tournament and at the golf yeah. course, the same day were some of the buds guys, some of the SOs who had just been selected as chiefs, they were selectees too. Yeah. And to them, it wasn't a big deal. Why? Because in their community, that rank structure didn't matter as much as that Trident did. And I think with your community, just getting through the pipeline was the combo was obviously a lot more than putting on anchors. For but me, for for a lot of people, it is the pinnacle of their career. And I don't take that away from them. I never thought I would. I thought I'd be an eternal E5. Um, I honestly never thought I'd make chief either because I, I never was politically correct enough. Um, yeah. And in fact, uh, when I did make it, I think it was because they were re rewarding people that were doing deployments at the time. Because I made it in 07. And it was, you know, at that time I had multiple combat deployments when a lot of people didn't. And at that point, I think the people that were on selection boards were like, okay, we need, uh, or the, the folks that are doing the business are the ones that we want to promote. So I think I got a little bit lucky. And then coming to standing up a, a, a program and a command didn't help or didn't hurt for the next rank. Yeah. I probably never would have made the next rank had it not been for that. Well, and you you not being the alpha dog is, I think, how we got along so good uh, when we met. Yeah, I just don't think there's any reason to be – no one's better than another person. I, I said it. Like, one injury away from graduating a program is all yeah. – it's, it's just the way it is, you know? No, I 100% I agree with you on that. So what – did it, did life get better at home when you got selected for PA school? No, actually it didn't because again, I went from stressful environment to even more stressful environment, right? It was different, but now I was always, I had two little kids, two little girls. And so they would always want to distract me from studying. So I had to study outside the house. So I was gone a lot studying. It took up, I mean, I'm telling you, we would go to the schoolhouse on Saturdays and Sundays and just sit there and do study groups. So even on the weekends, I was gone during that period of time. Like you have to dedicate yourself 100% to that program if you want to graduate. There's just too much, like you said, drinking through a fire hose. The tests are designed to weed people out that aren't getting it. And um, a lot of them, believe it or not, are fill in the blank tests. They are not multiple choice. They do not do that. In not multiple guess. No, uh, there are some tests that are, but it's very few. There a lot of it's hands-on. You go, you work with the cadavers, you have a sheet of paper, they have pins they put in to a, a nerve and you have to identify what nerve that is or vein or artery or, or you know, whatever. Muscle. So was, was that part difficult for you for, um, from your background? Uh, yes and no. A lot of it I had already had in 18 Delta. Again, 
I was removed from being a student though for a while. So I had to learn how to, you know, you have to teach your brain how to uptake information again when you're not in school and then study habits. How, how am I going to study and what's the best way to learn this information so that I can, I can learn it for real understanding so that when they give me a test, I can, they emphasize that right away, right out of the gate. They said, this is not your typical military school. If you think that you're just going to get multiple choice questions and that you're good at, at uh, weeding out the two that are wrong and 50-50 in, that's not going to happen here. You're going you're gonna to be out the door before you know it. So it was a, a definitely a, a level or two deeper, though, uh, uh, not only in demographics, but in the um, level of study. Not only so, you, you know, you, you've got your biceps brachii, but now they break it down into the sarcoid within the muscle and how ATP works to actually. Hence the molecular. Uh, absolutely. Yes. The how organic can to move that muscle and exactly what the contraption is that moves the muscle and each fiber you have to yeah they, they take it down to that level it's 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 legitimately um gray's anatomy uh for med school so um and they front load all the hard courses up front so again it got more stressful i was i was out of the house a lot and it ended up being one of the reasons that i made my decision well, actually, that's not true. Uh, I think, I think if my wife knew that I was going to be a, become a PA and say go to naval hospital, blah blah blah, or ship, blah blah blah, whatever, I think things would have been different. But um, they start screening you in that last six months. Okay, so all the really hard courses are in that first 12 months. Once you get to that last six months, you're doing a lot of work um, preparing you for clinicals, uh, writing your thesis paper, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not as challenging. It's kind of a, it's a downhill slope. You've reached the top of the mountain and you're coming down the other side. You're expected to graduate now from the academic portion. And once you make it to the academic portion, unless you commit some crime or something during clinicals, you're going to pass. There's no reason not to, right? Unless you do something heinous um, that puts a, a life at risk. But they also start screening you for where you're going to be stationed. And what I didn't realize is that they were already looking at dudes who had backgrounds for certain PA roles, because now the Navy's evolving and they're putting PAs with SOC units. And they're like, well, if we're going to put PAs with SOC units, we want PAs that came from SOC units. The, the, which would have logically been an obvious choice. Perfect, perfect, right? It makes complete sense. But my wife's biggest fear, and she knows me better than anyone else. <clears throat> so they were already screening me for, there was two duty stations. It was either going to be AMSOB in Jacksonville, North Carolina. They had they, they now have two PAs at each one of these locations on each coast, or it was going to be at the SDV SEAL unit in Hawaii. And I came home and I told my wife this information and I remember she just started crying. And she's like, I can't believe we did all of this to get away from that and you're going right back to it. And I said, yeah, but I'm going to be in the rear with the gear. I'm just going to be a PA. 
and she, and she looked at me and she says, are you kidding me? If you deploy with them, are you really going to stay on the base? Or if you get a chance to go out with a convoy, are you going to go? Yeah, I'm probably going to go out. And so it was like, she's like, I just can't take it. I can't take you deploying like that with these guys anymore. I know you, I know how you are. And I didn't know that this is what we were in for. And so that's, I had to make a decision. I said, okay, my, my, my family life, at this point, my girls were, you know, um, like four and two. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, I had, I had enjoyed becoming a father. I love being a dad, by the way. And even though I have girls, <laughs> that's going to be the uh, the phrase that your wife is going to play to them on their 18th birthday. So yeah. Here's what your dad thought about you. Yeah, 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 but but I realized, you know, I don't. It's going to break my heart leaving them all the time too. And I've I had watched other members of my community's families fall apart because kids were doing poorly. You know, dad's not around ever. Mom's trying to do everything, and uh, all of that went into the decision. And I finally said, I, I can't. I don't think I can follow through with this i need to resign from the program which i did so how could you went back to to metsy or whatever the the well, navy command is over there yeah right? so at that point at that point uh it was like okay i'm resigning this program because my intention is to get out of the navy all right and there wasn't the rule right now there's a rule in place that says if you have an enlistment on the books and say you've enlisted for six years and you've done four of it, you can't retire until you've done all six. That didn't exist when I put my retirement paperwork in. Um, but at, at the time it was like, okay, I've already over 20 years. I'm, I was already over 20 years, by the way, which is weird thinking about starting a whole new career. That is crazy. Okay. Um, but I, like I said, I was, humble. I didn't care. It was, it was crazy being a midshipman too, by the way, going back from being a, an E8 to a midshipman and having people boss you around. I was going to ask you that. I enjoyed it. It was like being a roper again. It I was, was going to ask like, you if you lost, did you, so you didn't keep any, yeah, never mind. Um, Cause we've had people going to PA school or getting ready to go to PA school, go through our chiefs thing. Um, yeah, that's, that's right. They get pinned chief and then they give it up for midshipmen. I forgot about that. For some reason, I was thinking you stayed a senior chief while you were going through school. You get paid what you're getting paid. So you get the pay that you were at the rank you yeah. were. But, but you were wearing. You wear little midshipmen anchors and you get bossed around and treated like, uh, you know, you're a cadet. Dirt, kind of <laughs> basically. Yeah, it's kind of funny. And, you know, the officers, it's real cute. They're, uh, they're being all hard on you. Or they think they're being all hard on you and uh i enjoyed that period of time um <laughs> i was the class leader for the navy obviously because i was a senior guy and uh that was a bit of a challenge because we had we had everybody from uh, e4 up to me and so we had all kinds of yeah believe it or not that person had come in kind of late in their career they had a lot of college and they, they oh, okay. came specifically to get into the pa program so um, now, never mind. But their command hooked them up is what happened. They yeah. should have. But it's neither here nor there. But 
So I had all these personalities. Uh, and so on top of being a, uh, a student, I was also the class leader and had to take care of everyone's drama and paperwork. Oh, no, by the way, we still had to do evals and all that stuff during the whole for process. for midshipmen or for your pay rank yeah it was for it was so i would still get a chief eval right and the junior enlisted would still get their e1 to e6 evals but it was like the standard blurbs you know this person oh, okay. they're doing this well in school and blah, blah 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 but all of those administrative processes still had to take place uh you know um pfa still had to run it twice a year so, you know, all that stuff was, was fun. Anyway, um, got on a tangent again. So yeah, the, the decision was made. And then uh, it was like, I still had years on my enlistment. So it was either I retire right then, which I didn't have a plan for that yet, right? I wasn't expecting to just get out right then. And so I went down to, uh, NMTSC, Navy, uh, what's it called? Navy, Navy Medical uh, Training uh, Service Command, command shit. Whatever. whatever. They're the one, they're, they're, they were the actual Navy element under the METC that took care of the Navy issues. And so they had their own Master Chief uh, down there. It, it wasn't a command Master Chief. She was an IDC. And uh, I said, hey, uh, I'll be your janitor if you just let me come over here because my intention is to retire. Like I'm not going, but I don't care about making rank. I don't care about, um, this is where I'm coming from and this is why. And she said, well, we have a, we don't have a chief over at Dimmertai. She's like, I'm willing to make a call and see if they'll keep you here. Well, first there was some drama because they wanted me back in the community. So I said, okay, I'll just drop my, uh, I'll drop my specialty code. I'll just become a regular corpsman. And uh, I had to get permission from the ETL to do that. I talked to him. I knew him personally at the time. We all knew, everybody knew everybody because it was such a small community. And I told him what my goals were and why I was doing it. And they ended up letting me out. I was really surprised. So they stripped my, uh, my title of uh, being a SARC and I became a, 84 or excuse me a uh, 84 corpsman still very proud of that and then uh put me over at Dimmertai and basically I just became a chief so Dimmertai is what defense medical training institute or something like that yeah defense medical readiness training institute it's actually right. there's it's, always an R yeah it's an institute of higher uh education for officers it's uh, really quite an interest, interesting place I I've, uh, I've heard it explained as it's a TCCC for uh, operational doctor medicine. Doctor well, level. that is uh, the common, uh, what everybody knows about it, but it's kind of a misnomer. There's numerous, numerous things that get done at Dimmertai that people don't even know about. Like they're the, the head of trauma Navy sits, whoever the, the CO is for that command is the person who is also um, the head trauma guy. Um, oh, wow. so they go to all they they go to all the symposiums and everything else and set standard for Navy medicine for for trauma training, um, which is yeah. That, so yeah. Uh, we run all of the the uh, the live tissue for the officers, um, and 
what a, a lot of people don't realize is there's a whole uh, epidemiology slash, um, uh, what am I trying to say? So, uh, epidemiology section behind the scenes where- uh, um, Like medical intelligence, basically. Yeah, uh, uh, sort of, but um, they're dealing with, with like, uh, disease outbreaks and there's a lot of components of dermatite that are very interesting people don't realize that they do wow so yeah so just to clarify you archived your nec i did not, it didn't get stripped that sounds so horrible like you did something horrible well that no, was my decision right i yeah yeah you archived it you didn't get it stripped it's true no i didn't do anything to, to get it stripped that's yeah. right yeah, I just want to caveat that because the way you made it sound, it seemed like they hated you and they <laughs> wanted to screw you over and just take it away from you. No, no, that was my decision. That was the only way that I was going to get to stay because of the numbers. Uh, if I had kept that um, job code, they were going to send me back to um, the East Coast to Lejeune. And at the time, they already had two Master Chiefs at that command and another senior chief so what that meant was i was going to go back into a team yeah and that would have gone over like a bag of shit with your wife right so and that, and then and we're talking i'm already over 40 years old now so door kicking at that age is a whole new ball of wax and so um you're right it, it wasn't it wasn't going to go over well in fact i wasn't real excited about that to be honest with you at this point i had come through um some tribulations and and seeing another side of navy medicine and i wasn't sure that i was ready to go back and do that kind of job again uh, i certainly wasn't in shape the way that i was when i got to fort sam houston and uh so i would have had to uh really put myself through the ringer to get back to where i needed to be and not only that but it was time like my i had seen enough of the young generation that i knew well and okay during my time at dimmertai was also uh there was a lot of social experimentation going on in the military at the time there was the transgender training stuff uh etc cetera, etc cetera. and and as a senior leader, I was spending, I remember we, we had to cancel a, a range. People were unqualified in the army. Demerti was a tri-service. So uh, as their senior enlisted, I was in, in charge of the army, the air force, the Navy. Um, and so I had to make sure that the army's qualification for their soldiers were maintained as well as, as the um, med techs, that their stuff was maintained for their, not only their rank, but for their qualifications across the board, EMTB, whatever. But just like Marines, soldiers have to have uh, qualify on the range once a year. And I remember there was people not qualified and we gave up that range because it was mandated that we train them uh, 100% in transgender uh, training. And not everybody had been trained in my command and only people that could give it were, the, were what they call the triad, the, the CO, senior enlisted or the executive officer which in the air force the executive officer is something different and and then in the army it is too but for the navy that's like the second in command uh, so wait what, what are they in the in, air force in the army 
the executive officer is like the scribe for the CO. Oh, okay. Like a little uh, second lieutenant that runs around and does their bidding. So when you say executive officer to the army, that doesn't mean, that means that that's, that's a nobody. So what's their term for number two? Um, well, they have the battalion commander and then, uh, what is their term? I'm drawing a blank. Ah, uh, see, you got me, man. Huh. I, I always thought it was XO and no. Or is it may or is it a sergeant major and just CEO? No, no, there's number two. But it's not like the Navy. The, the Navy's that triad is more strong in the Navy than it is the other two services. And I think it's because they're on land. Makes sense. Yeah. It so really you does. always have to have a number two designated when you're on a ship somewhere in the middle of the ocean, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we can get into that whole sidebar about naval service versus land lovers. <laughs> Even though no right. one of us has really spent a tremendous amount of days at sea. Well, I've been on I've been on two muse traveling, not as passengers, yes. not as a not not as ship's complement. Correct. So the that's what I was going to get to next. So you get to Dimmertai, um you at some point in time decide it's time uh, i'm assuming a lot of the changes with the military uh, made a difference in your decision to say it's time to put everything up and yeah uh, i think that that they made retirement 20 years for a reason that's enough time for there to be a new generation coming in and the older people don't always necessarily understand the younger folks um is it be is it because they're better or worse no it's just we communicate differently. We were taught differently. We were raised differently. And the military will constantly be evolving with the, with technology and these young people coming in. So at some point, you become a little bit obsolete uh, in the way that you train, in the way that you think, in the way that uh, you communicate with the younger folks. And they don't understand you either. And so there is a time when it's okay to say it's my turn to go and let somebody else take my place that that can talk to them. So you, you retired what, 2018? Yes. Uh, was that a bit, a bittersweet day or was that a welcome day for you? I was ready. It was a welcome day, but that afternoon it hit me. And, and I don't think, it was like this really emotional moment. It was just like, wow, I don't have any responsibility tomorrow. Was that, was that your terminal day or was that your, I have my DD-214 in hand day? Uh, no, that was, what was that? No, that was my, that was my, uh, that was my retirement day, but I was still on terminal leave. Oh, okay. Your ceremony day? Yep. Because I, I, I only had to go back one time after that to pick up my DD-214 and paperwork. You know, I had done everything. And so at this point, I was just on terminal leave. And it hit me like, I don't have any responsibility tomorrow. This is crazy. Like, the weight just that you feel lifted from that. I didn't realize how much weight you feel when you're in charge of people yep. until that afternoon, to be honest with you. And so you and I lost contact. Uh, I was supposed to be at retirement ceremony, but I had something slightly more important to do, train for 
some stupid games or some shit like that that yeah. uh yeah Very far more important far far more important than your godforsaken retirement no i'm kidding i really do regret not going and not being able to go that oh, being you should have done but you did exactly what you needed to be doing i uh, thank you that being said um we lost some contact there for a while and when we reached back out and talked or messaged this is actually the first time i think we've had a voice conversation yeah, the last two podcasts so you were that burden of release seems to have not lasted of good happy able to move on true what when reality kicked in um well i think you know so so it was kind of blissful at first right just like any vacation you're done you had a plan but just like any plan plans change things change things evolve and this life happened wife changed jobs and <clears throat> what i did what i wasn't ready for is how quickly so military relationships are, are are unique. You can have the best friends in the world. Like you told me to get on a plane, I'd get on a plane. You know what I mean? It, I'd, I'd buy a ticket, I'd get on a plane for you. We haven't seen each other in a long time. Still, wouldn't matter. But we could go two years without saying a word to each other at the same time, right? It's strange. Yeah. We, we compartmentalize these relationships as we have them wherever we are. That doesn't mean we let the previous ones go. It's just that we don't focus on them. And I think it's because we're always in this, well, this is my duty station here and then I'm moving and then I'm moving and then I'm moving. Things are so compartmentalized in our life. Well, they become uncompartmentalized when you get out. And um, so the, the bigger picture comes into effect. And then all of a sudden it's like, you're gone. So you're no longer relevant. You just don't, nobody calls you anymore. I don't know if you experienced the same yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. But it's like you were important. So everybody was calling you all the time where you had a job. And so everybody needed you, but now all of a sudden you're gone. And so you're out of the picture and it's not on purpose. Nobody's not calling you because they don't want to. It's just Chef's gone. Yeah. You know, Tommy's gone. So I just, there was just no communication from anybody anymore. The people that you talk to all the time. It's, it was like, Whoa, I'm a, uh, I'm flying solo. Man, it's crazy. And so not only that, but um, I think that one of the things that us military guys, well, I'm, I'm generalizing now. I'll just talk about my experience. I think I looked at, you know, when I, when I was having some troubles with some, <clears throat> so I was diagnosed with PTSD back in like 2011. Um, you know that. And I had gone, I had gotten a system of, a whole system of treatment. And they put me on meds. But there was a stigma in my brain about meds, right? And so I had this whole goal. And that was all I focused on. Instead of the, the counseling, the coping skills, and the things that were good for my life, uh, I focused on the fact that I needed to get off these meds. I need to get off these meds. You need to get, because this is not, this is weakness. And I looked at it as a mission. So I got to a point where I was like, I can get off the meds. And the psychiatrist was like, okay, I'll take you off the meds. 
And I was like, okay, mission accomplished. I've, I've beat this thing. And so what I've learned is that this is not, this is a lifelong process. Once, once you have trauma, trauma doesn't just go away. And you never know what can trigger it or what can, what will, um, when it'll come up. You just don't, you know, it's the strangest thing in the world. Not everybody, and I'm sure you're the same way. You don't always know when you're going to get triggered by something. And so when, after I got out, uh, I kind of had a relapse. And that was when I finally realized this is not a mission that you can win. This is not like a battle. Every day is a battle. It's not, you're going to accomplish this, get over it, and it's going to be behind you and you beat it. And that's the way I had treated it before, which is why I don't think I ever made any progress until not until after my second bout of having to go get some help. Because I really realized, oh, I got it. I can't beat this. I'm not, this is not something I can shoot or stab or beat to death until it's dead. It's, it's going to be with me and I got to embrace it. And it becomes a hard thing to with the mindset that I'm going to, I will generalize that a lot of us uh, take when we go downrange is seek, engage and destroy the enemy. Uh -huh. That's the only option that we have. That's is. it. And then to have this monkey on your back that you keep trying to beat down, whether it's through getting off of the psych meds, alcohol, whatever, coming to the realization of I can't beat this is one thing coming to the acceptance that this is now part of your life is a whole different thing. That acceptance is beautiful because what that is, is an acceptance that this is the new you. Yeah. And, and it's okay to be that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to use a hashtag called that I would say forged by life. Everything that happened in your life was a requirement for you to be sitting talking to me right now. If one of those things would have changed, the direction of your life probably would have been way different. And that's what kind of got me to the acceptance point was everything that's happened, no matter how good or how bad had to happen in order for me to be here right now talking to you. Uh, yeah, no, you're right about that. Yep, yeah, there's no question. So I'm going to jump and I, I want your opinion on this before we get into the crazy year that 2020 is um, and how that's working with your, with your current mindset all right real quick though before since we're on this subject before we get off it it's important for anybody that's going to be listening to your podcast to realize that you're not the only ones going Wait. through anything there's lots of dudes that have come before you in fact i can i can it's crazy to me i always thought that i was the weak one now i'm finding out there's a whole bunch of my community of guys that are also have gone through counseling, gotten help. And I think it's all made them better people. Definitely. So if you're listening to this and having a hard time and wondering about it, you're not alone. You're not weak. No, not at all. And actually that's where we were going to go next was to talk more about treatment. Um, and I wanted to go back to your childhood being out in the jungle and being around the indigenous population. I know that they, most of those populations have a rich shamanic culture. Yes. Much like we talked about them having a rich warrior culture. Correct. There is a move, uh, whether it's some of the soft guys I've seen, uh, 
a populist move in just general public. We've talked about it at the very end of the podcast, uh, the last one we did with the CBD and the THC. So the question is, have you, do you think that any of those shamanic practices that you had in your life, not necessarily you directly, but that tribal shamanistic uh, way of thinking would help people with getting back to nature, getting more in touch with the natural world, help with coming to acceptance to their new world that they live in? I do. I really do. And it's not just because it's an alternative form. I think that what it's doing is it's connecting you back to simplicity. It's taking chaos and making it simple again. You know, so many of our medicines are derived from things that we've come, that have come from nature. We make them synthetically now in labs, but the reality is, is that, you know, for whatever reason, we do have an endocannabinoid system in our body, right? That's not there for no reason. And so um, science Science has an arrogance about it that it always thinks that it's reached the pinnacle of understanding and then something, something else comes along and, and smashes that it smashes that right. So I'm not going to say that we don't, there's other parts of our body that we may not have yet discovered that are, um, you know, receptors for other kinds of uh, plants and medicinals that are out there that have been lost. Don't forget that the, these, these civilizations where I grew up, like the Mayans, the Aztecs, and the Incas were so far advanced, so much farther advanced uh, in mathematics and science, in astro- astronomy, astrology, all kinds of things than, than any people on the planet at the time, other than the Egyptians. I mean, their calendars, what we follow today, who knows what they knew that we've lost? about and they lived in the areas where most of these plants grow so uh i I remember you know we started out talking about my upbringing one of the things that my father had to do to learn the language was to just gain the trust of the people and 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 having to do that he would just trek with them he would just walk around with them and they would teach him as they were teaching him words about what this plant, what this plant does and what they use this plant for. And I remember he's got it all written down um, in his journal. I should go back. We should, we should have another podcast that talks just about that because that was in the 1970s. Even some of that information has probably been lost by the people as of today. But yes, I do believe, okay, so not even medicinals, but just getting back to, hey, I can make a fire. And I don't need a, a match to do it. I can make a fire by rubbing two pieces of wood together or making a bow, you know, with some string. Those type of things are confidence builders. And, and they're also activities that you can do with family, that you can do by yourself, that gets you into nature where, where people, people's spirits are better off in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I, with the other little thing I do, the daily, the former daily vlog on, on the virus early on, I had mentioned everyone should have at least one primal skill. Yes. And, and it honestly, hunting just made my life, uh, though I, 
wasn't successful and haven't been successful for deer season this yet, but wasn't successful with uh, any hogs. It made me comfortable enough to know that if I had to and had the meat market, uh, the whole meat industry failed, like at one point in time they were predicting, it gave me a confidence. And I'll tell you, my, my issues upstairs changed when I started getting out in nature and hunting and yeah. walking more. Um, to that and to the people that you, you you grew up around, I know that though they weren't all, you know, monotheistic uh, believers, how much did spirituality play to them? You're and talking about much, the indigenous people? or yeah, and, and how much you think having a good, solid spiritual base, whatever that may be, helps with your situation or any situation of PTS? Yeah. So I think you, you already know that I'm a spiritual person. So I firmly believe that that has a, a big, how do I want to put this? I think that people that have some kind of faith or spirituality have an easier time dealing with any kind of obstacle uh, of PTS, <clears throat> no matter what it is or trauma um, or, or life uh, trials and tribulations than folks that, that don't. And, and the reason I say that is if, if there's something, if you have a spirituality and you believe in something greater than yourself, or even if it's a sense of community or, um, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a higher power, but something to hold on to that, that you feel is important. I think it makes a difference between going down a bad road and ending up committing suicide or getting into drugs and alcohol to, to, to find a solution versus trying to find positive ways out of whatever it is, circumstances you find yourself in. I do believe in that. The, the folks that I was around believed in ancestor spirits. They would, they would try to commune. And, and the Mayans, that, that was very much their culture. They would try to commune with their ancestor spirits and, and glean wisdom through the shamans and this, that, and the other. Um, so I don't necessarily subscribe to that way of thinking, but that, that was very much present around me when I was a youngster growing up. So spirituality, I mean, and then of course, my parents being missionaries, we had our own version of spirituality. So yeah, I think that that's helped a lot. It gives you uh it gives you a base. It gives you a sense of, okay, I, I don't feel alone even when I am alone. Um, and there, there's, there's hope. Yeah. And it's important. Hope is ultimately for anybody, any human being is really important. And I, th I think that um, one of the things that's beautiful about whether it's uh, the Mayans, the Aztecs, some of the Native American uh, culturals, culturals, that wasn't a word, cultures, um, <laughs> with what we would call their drugs, the peyote, marijuana, mushrooms, uh, ayahuasca, they do it in ceremony. And right. I think that's one thing that our medical care, especially with the behavioral health world, uh, loses where mm -hmm. it's part of that spirit. There's a purpose for doing it. You have a shared, uh, a shared story that you're telling. And it's much like when we talked earlier about a rite of passage. You being a roper, getting through BRC was kind of your right, a passage, a, a seal, graduating 
buds. They did this common thing. And so that was your rite of passage. And there was like a ceremonial event that yeah. happened, um, whether it's pinning on your FMF pin, or that, that culminating event, your wings, your bubble, whatever it may be. But we lose that when we go see a shrink, the wizard, whatever you want to call the mm -hmm. mental health professionals who say, take these and you got 45 minutes. Tell me what's going on. It feels really sterile compared to. Oh, it's complete. I 100% agree. Some of my best therapy sessions were when, you know, Daryl and Matt and I and you know, anybody else would sit around a campfire out at the lease, even if we didn't bag a boar or whatever, and just talk around a campfire at night under the stars. That to me, those moments are more therapeutic, especially out in nature than, than anything that you can do. I mean, I think I get it. They have formulas and they have these coping skills that are really good um in times of need in in our modern world right you have to have it because some people really do need pharmacology and some people really do oh yeah yeah definitely uh, but but i do think that we're missing that element of and you know i think the problem the problem is is that maybe you and i have embraced this kind of mentality but there's still a lot of hardcore people out there they're like what are you gonna do go sing kumbaya around the corner or whatever you know what i mean and they don't they don't see it for what it is, which is getting back to, to simplicity, to quiet, to peace, to not the rat race, which yes. causes so much of our, our, uh, our issues to spike. Uh, you know, one of, one of my biggest fears is being trapped. And when I say fear, I should say, I, I always get a heightened sense of awareness and anxiety when I feel like I'm trapped in a situation. Um, and, and, you know, that may be different for, for everybody, but going out in and in being barefoot in the yard and being around a campfire, talking with people that, that I love under some stars, that's not, that's the opposite of feeling tra trapped. That's feeling free. And I think that's why it's so healthy. People don't commune with nature enough. They don't get out in it. They don't, they don't stick a piece of grass in their teeth and chew on it and walk around and feel the, the, the breeze and smell the smells and try to determine what animal print that was. And you know what I mean? That those kinds of things that people used to do are part of us as human homo sapiens, as humans. I mean, think about it. We've lived, speaking of ancestors, our ancestors have lived 99% of our existence as modern humans in dirt. In dirt. It's just within the last millisecond of human history that we've built these concrete jung jungles. Yeah. So let's take it to the fun part. Um, you do your retirement in 2018. 2019, you do what you did. And magically we go happy new year's 2020 and things actually look up for a little bit in early 2020 um i don't know what you were doing or you know january february but the year felt like it was going to be a good year yes yeah, sure did 
started out real good. And then I can tell you March 13th, the reason why I know this is because it was a Friday and March 14th, I was supposed to run a 5k that was canceled. We are told that we are going to be doing 14, what was it? 14 days, 14 to, slow days the, to slow the spread. So we go into 2020's shit show and it really does feel like a decade that we've been, when I say post and pre pandemic, I can identify 345 in the afternoon driving back from the ranch on March 13th. Cause it was a Friday the 13th when I heard that come through. Um, so what did that feel like for you going into lockdown? Well, the, the thing is, is that at the time, so the, the biggest change was my kid's school, right? So, so I don't think I really processed what it was doing to me. I was working at, so beginning of 2020, I was working on a startup business, which I was building out of my garage. And that everything was moving forward. The shutdown like terminated a lot of, of that. So, but in a way I looked at it as a blessing because all schools stopped and automatically this whole Zoom classroom thing started. And I know you didn't have to deal with that, dude, but no. that was a, that was a, a you wanna talk about a shit show. That 80% of the San Antonio public schools in the last quarter of that year, 80% of the students never even logged on one time. Wow. Which is why, which is why nationally they just decided to give the kids the grades they had when they stopped school. So you're talking about a whole group of people that never even finished, never even did school after March 13th ever again until they started up uh, this online thing here for the new school year. And so for me, it was about concentrating on my kids and uh, it was about four hours for each child a day. So literally, and I had to help them because we're talking about technology that they'd never experienced before. Having to sign up and have their own email, checking their assignments, Google Classroom. Google Classroom's not the easiest thing to nav navigate if you've never and my kids have always had a pad, right? But they've never actually worked on the computer with the keyboard. They're in a typing class, but they're still like, so not doing all your assignments online, it was a big challenge, not only for me, but for them. They, we, they had one day when ever, all the parents could go at a designated time to pick up this huge packet for each child for the rest of the year. And I had all the assignments and then the uh, teachers would give out the, the assignments uh, for the day. And so every morning the kids would have to go into their email, check it. And then it was, it was not easy. We built right behind me, there was hanging this uh, molecule um, or an atom. My, of course, my kid chooses gold. All the other kids choose helium, which has two. two <laughs> Instead, Wait, my kid chooses gold, which is AU-79. Okay, I was going to say, what was the atomic number of uh, gold? 79? 79. Damn. <laughs> so right behind me was this huge freaking contraption that we built. 
Uh, but you know, that's the thing, being a dad, sometimes you got to let them learn those things, those mistakes on their own, right? It was fun though. But that for me, I, I went into dad mode. I went into, and I was fortunate because I wasn't working, that I was one of the few fortunate people that could concentrate on my kids not falling behind. I can't imagine like all my neighbors, their kids were out running around all day long, ringing our doorbell. Hey, can the kids play? I'm like, no, they're, I had to put a sign on the door. Kids are in school. Don't knock until the signs are taken down. And so really up until the summer, that was my, my whole day, every day. So at what point did you know, trying to think of this and phrasing it the right way. Um, at what point did 14 days go to, oh, fuck, this is going to go on for a lot longer than I thought? Uh, March 13th. I was, I was under no illusions that, that was when, 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 when I saw Dr. Fauci and Dr. Bricks on TV talk about that and realized that the country was now in the hands of an epi epidemiologist, I was like, oh, God. I've worked with some epidemiologists before. So I was going to save that for later, but let's go in, let's explore that. Because to me, my impression of at least Fauci is if he could live his life in a hermetically sealed bubble and never have to physically touch anything again, he probably would. Yep. And see, but that is an epidemiologist. By nature, their model and everything they learn about is dangerous. And so their, their goal is to mitigate, mitigate everything. This is dangerous, how do I mitigate it? This is dangerous, how do I mitigate it? So they live in a medical world of fear. And how do we, how do we not allow bad? And so they're always thinking through that prism and through that lens. So as soon as I saw him get up there on, on the podium next to the president, I was like, oh God. He just delegated the country to an epidemiologist. We are screwed. We are screwed. And, I, and then I thought, my second thought, and this is probably wrong, but from a political perspective, I was like, okay, this was the contingency plan right here. That economy was humming. It's an election year. All of a sudden, we got a disease that comes out. And we got a dude that worked for the Clintons telling us we have to shut down. I said, okay, there's, there's bigger things going on here. And this is going to be, this is going to be for the long term. I said, I said to my wife, she's like, well, you know, if we can just do this. And I said, baby, we're talking about a virus. So we're talking about a virus. There's no way we, I, I said, until we establish, and I, I told her this the next day, so I want to say it's March 14th or 15th. I said, until we establish herd immunity or we have enough people that have been exposed to this thing, there's not any stopping it. It's a virus. So on my little, understand it. so on my daily vlog, that's my thing. And it's been my thing for about five months now. It's in the wild. The virus is in the wild. There are 900 non-millions that's 900 with 27 zeros behind it viruses uh -huh. guess what the that last we know of. yes guess what the last thing this virus wants to do the last thing this virus wants to do is kill you it just wants to reproduce which is why i think it initially was so lethal and it mutated 
We've seen viruses do that in the past as well, including the flu. We've only had pandemic flus a couple of times, but the reality is, is that they've mutated down to a form where they can live and continue to grow and mutate without killing the hosts. And I think yeah. that's, that's what we saw. It's now where we have 12 strains of Corona, I think. Are we up that high? I think so. And, uh, but it's mutated itself to the point where it's not, not as lethal. Well, there, there's some great people who, and hopefully this one doesn't get silenced, but that have been silenced uh, because of big tech who talk about um, oh, the Gomper curve where there were supposed to be, you know, say 50,000 people who died in Europe in 2019, only 10,000 did. And oh, wow, guess what? The number of people who died from the first pass of the virus uh, almost identically matched that curve. Yeah, you're right. And I think the sad part is, and again, I go back to the arrogancy that I presume to have because I'm a corpsman and I've been so lucky to work with doctors who trusted me implicitly, but they're, people don't want to hear it from us because you're not a doctor. Well, I can look at the charts and the data. I, I can see, I can see the trends. You can see the trends. You were technically a provider by the standards of the United States Navy. Oh, I have a national provider number. You can look yeah. me up. You, I, you had a DEA number yeah, too, right? Yep. And so from what you've seen over the last seven, eight months, is this virus going to kill us all? No, 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 no. No, what it's going to do is it's going to, it's going to do exactly what the flu has done. It's so new that everybody's so fearful of it, but it's going to do exactly what the flu has done over the years. It's going to live amongst us um, and it's going to come around every year and there will be different strains of it. And we'll probably have vaccines for both uh, COVID now and the flu every year. Um, it's not going to kill us all. <laughs> come on. I think I've known a lot of people. I know a firefighter that's had it twice. Um, he's, you know, and so uh, it, the symptoms range so drastically and they're still learning about it. And now the newest data shows that people that are vitamin D deficient are the ones that are having uh, terrible symptoms. So, you know, start taking vitamin D. Get out in the and, sun. <laughs> yeah, get out there. And see, that goes back again to the way that we live, right? Uh, if we're in the dirt and we're in, um, in, in the outdoors, we're being exposed and it, our immune systems, just like any muscle in our body, it needs to be challenged so that it's at peak performance. Masks are causing uh, the uh, you know, demutation of our immune system. And we're rebreathing our CO2, changing the pH in our body. We're making ourselves right. Wait, but, but you're, you're spreading conspiracy theories. I sure am. I sure am. But, but, but you have no, you're not a doctor. Why are you saying this? <laughs> <laughs> but you can just look at simple uh, anatomy and, and look at how the pH changes in your body when you rebreathe CO2. And you can see what that does to your T cell count or anything else in your immune system. And you'll see that it protracts it from being at its best. Yeah. It's like taking away, uh, you know, water from some, from an athlete during a race. It's, it's crazy. And, and so we've done almost everything in, in, in this pandemic, almost in a, in a way to keep people's minds at ease instead of really protecting them. Look at the Swedish model. 
Is is anybody looking at Sweden? Well, they, they well everyone who is so everyone who looks at Sweden says well there are small villages and they only have one or two big population centers and it, they obey rules better than Americans, blah, 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 blah. Um, All those things may be true, but what they did is they focused their money and their efforts on the high risk individuals. Yeah. Well, one of the things that no one talks about, speaking about masks, I will wear a mask whenever a business wants me to. You're not going to see me the minute I, I walk out of it. The, the minute I walk out of HEB, it's off. I, I clear the doors and it's coming off. That being said, um, it's not worth getting a fight over. Yeah. yeah. That, but that being said, when it's all said and done, nobody looks at the people who are wearing masks all day at work. Um, there was a book I read called, uh, damn it, I just lost the train of thought. Uh, it's by Max Lugavir. He talks about um, contaminants in, in nature, it, the, you know, from the BPA that's inside this can uh, that lines the inside of steel cans uh, to the inks that are used being estrogenic compounds. How many people do you know are wearing pure white uh, masks? Almost nobody. They're all wearing something that has been dyed, dyed. Uh, have prints on it. That means you're inhaling. If those are off-gassing in any way, shape or form, you're inhaling they the off-gassing. Yep, because even if it's microparticles, those are still entering your lungs and, and yeah. And right. I, to, to put it in perspective, one of the things he talked about in his book is there is enough BPA on, you know, the thermal paper receipts. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that there has been documented like thousands of documented cases of girls having estrogen issues in their teenage years by being cashiers, by touching them daily. Oh, huh. And so those compounds could be in the plastics that are in the ink that are on your mask. I highly look, there's going to be an entire data set of studies that are done over the next four years. I keep yeah. telling people there, everybody's an expert, right? None of us are experts. We don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. But so nobody's going to know really about COVID and the after effects of this year for another four years. Yeah. And, and no one's going to know the, the tertiary effects either. And, and just like with asbestos, we're going to see all kinds of respiratory issues come up in the, in the next decade because of mask usage. Yeah. But and people want to say that masks are the, the guarantee or, you know, if you wear a mask, we're not going to spread the virus. Well, if you go to the OSHA website and you look at the studies and the data that's out there about the different kinds of masks that they use, and this is OSHA. Um, you can see what the different masks are used for. Everybody's talking about N95, N95, N95. But if you go and you read on the OSHA website what the N95 was designed for, it was designed for people working in spaces with chemicals. It's designed for chemical molecules that are a certain size. I think over 95 uh, nanometers. I think that's what the, I think that's what the- uh, That's what the 95 is, right? So, yeah. so we're talking about something that's on a, a, a molecule level, right? Um, but the virus is less than two microns. Yeah, the, the virus is actually 60, at the largest version of the virus is 67 nanometers. So that's, a nanometer is a thousand times smaller than a micron. Yes, correct. Yeah. And exactly. you can make the arguments, well, it's a water droplets, that it, it's in the water droplets, blah, 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 blah. My point is 
there was a, uh, and I'll go, I, I used to refer to it all the time. I call it the China study. There was a study done in the early days after China shut everything down that found out of 7,700 cases that they tracked. Do you know how many cases were tracked to large open outdoor spaces? Uh, probably 80%. Two. Oh, yeah, okay. Two cases that transmitted to two or more people. That was it. 99.9997% were from office spaces, homes, or mass transit. Because what happens? You're outside. And seeing people walking outside 20 feet away from people, it, it is, I hate to get conspiratorial, but it's like a mechanism of control. It is absolutely. This, this, that's what's happening right now is, is the, the control factor in our country and our liberties being taken is speeding up. It's so speeding up at an end. And we were talking about the N95, just, just so listeners understand that mask, according to OSHA, is designed, actually designed to expel all the contents of your lungs. It doesn't want to keep particulates in. It wants to get them out. It's, a, it's seeking to not let them in when you're breathing. So in. it's like a regulator. Correct. In so reverse. In a room with anybody wearing an N95 mask for more than a couple minutes, they're rebreathing your air anyway. It's just such horse shit that these masks are stopping the spread. Anybody that's in a room for more than six minutes with another individual, even if it's across the whole room, you're rebreathing their air after six minutes any expelled air that they've had. That's just science. So we wanna talk about the science. People that are in, and you know what? My wife, uh, she started a new job, I wanna say in August. And uh, she, she works at the hospital in Seguin now. She was working from home previously with her old job. Now she, got a, she has to go to the office, she has to wear a mask all day. She's been sick twice since she started working there. And I know it's because she wears that mask all day long. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a big issue. I, I, I do want to go, we're going to come back to this because I think the control issue and what you're saying is very valid, but we were talking about the initial days of the lockdown and it was what it was. We started to open up here in Texas. We're both in Texas. Um, did you think that maybe it would have lasted longer than two weeks? Yes, just because incubation periods uh, tend to be for some viruses longer than two weeks. So I wasn't understanding what, what the two week mark was. Uh, I, think, I think that was a combination of epidemiologists, <clears throat> you know, like trying to advise politicians and then politicians trying to not create panic. Um, so I don't, I don't know how they selected two weeks. It didn't make sense to me. Yeah, and everything, every every state that I've watched uh, seems to have been like phase one reopening two weeks. If they didn't have the numbers in phase two, another two weeks, which like you said, this virus has been shown up to 21 days of, of uh, dormancy or uh, uh, not dormancy, but being able to be in spread over a period of up to 21 days. Correct. So, um, we start, we go from phase four or whatever, one or four to th down to like the halfway point. Then, uh, in my opinion, a really shitty incident happened up in Minnesota and 
the world lost its mind for the second time in like two months. Were you ever concerned during that point in time? I was, well, I was concerned. I was concerned in terms of like what was going to happen in the country. Um, I wasn't concerned for the area that I live in though. Yeah. I mean, in, in, but, for the country in general. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think that there's a, and the problem is, is there's a lot of ball danglers that are jumping onto this for their own political gain, for their own purposes um, that are, you know, and then there's just the people that are doing stupid shit um, to get a TV or whatever that, and organizations like sports organizations, they're all, there's all this movement now and it's causing, we are literally going backwards. I was telling my wife and this is a hard conversation to have, right? But let's be honest. If, if I'm 12 and white right now, I'm what, if I'm watching the news, I now have a different opinion of black people than I did a year ago. It's, it's creating a bias in me that wasn't there previously because it's in my face all the time now, right? It's in my face. And I, the way that I'm, and then if I'm a young black kid, I'm being taught and I'm, that the world is against me. It's creating biases in me right now. When I'm also- creating a whole new generation of racism right well, now, this year. I feel like uh, there's also going to be some resentment towards young white kids going, looking at their parents differently too. I agree. Like, like why, why are you letting this happen? You're supposed to be protecting everyone. And yeah, I, I agree. I agree. It's a, it's a crazy, crazy situation. Now that incident that sparked it all was awful. I think all of us agree. Like, I don't think there's very, I've heard two people who say it was completely justified. That's it. Well, they're wrong. Yeah. No, yeah. The, the, the reality is, is I think the entire world, the entire world in the week that followed that was on board. Yeah. Until the overreaction split the country again, like whatever the hell they did in Seattle with that chop zone, Portland, 100 plus days of rioting and looting. And, and then you're going to tell me that you're going to throw a Molotov cocktail at police and that's not deadly force? Like, how is that any better than what took place? So, so I think we had an, a real opportunity where every person saw that and was on board. And then I don't know if it was nefarious forces, political forces, just ignorance took over and has completely split us up again into different piles. Yeah, definitely. Well, and the reason why I brought that up specifically was because, again, I want to go back to uh, your previous job and your childhood. I mean, you you have been around um, multicultural people your entire life for uh-huh. the most part uh like you said even when you moved back here as a kid you didn't feel like the white kid you kind of related more towards uh-huh. the, the natives that you are the uh 
the indigenous people that you lived around, um, I could say out of the special operations communities I've been around, recon in MARSOC probably has a pretty large diversity. Yes. In terms of like probably more black guys that I've seen in the two special operations communities I've been adjacent to. I, I can only think of two or three SEALs. Um, I don't know a lot of people in SF. So MARSOC would be the other side. And I'd say that there's a decent representation of black guys there. And Hispanics and Asians. And, well, the Marine Corps is like 45% Hispanic. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a real, uh, I agree. It's a cross section, especially the West Coast Marines. Yeah, I mean, there there were more, uh, LAR, there were more Hispanics, I would say, than whites and blacks combined. Yeah. I, it, it was, there were more Gonzaleses and Garcias wow. than I, Hispanics. yeah, because I had to do, med I was an HM2 filing medical records. So yeah, I could see. <laughs> G. Wait, which which Garcia? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, so to me, a lot of this is somewhere along the line. Definitions change. I I did this little rant about police uh, after it happened, and you'd probably disagree with a lot of what I said. But um, one of the things that, and I've said it with COVID, one of the things that's changed is what are the definitions. What is, when we look at COVID, when I focus with my little vlog on serious and criticals, well, what is the definition of a serious and critical? Because we talk about hospitalizations rising. Yes. I know from my medical background what a serious or critical person is. And we're not seeing those rise, but if we're talking about hospitalizations in terms of anyone showing up to the ER and having to spend a night in the hospital, that may be a legitimate fact. But in terms of people needing... ICU, that's not going through the roof. No, it's not. Now, with the George Floyd and all, everything that happened after that, somebody along the line changed the definition of racism, in my opinion. It used to be a very specific, I have a fundamental belief that my race is superior to yours, and therefore there's nothing that you can do that will ever be good, and I will always have a superior position to you where in the military we talk shit to everyone everyone and, and your skin color may have been part of the butt of the joke but didn't mean i hate you or i have any ill will towards you no it's kind of like i i equate the military to being at the comedy club like you can't you're not allowed to be pissed off at the yeah. comedy club right exactly. everything on the table you can he makes fun of everybody up there or she makes fun of everybody up there sex gender race doesn't matter everybody laughs and then you leave right that's yeah. like the military and that's how I feel like you used to be able to make a couple off-color jokes and it wouldn't cause the world to explode. Now, everyone's walking on eggshells for whatever reason. That's an understatement, actually. Yeah. So 2020 has been a year of pandemics, riots, and presidential elections. And I think, I really do feel like they're all some sort of vortex of fuck everyone at this point in time. Um, I don't play partisan games. I just find it. Don't you less... think it's interconnected though? The what? Don't you think it's too much of a coincidence? Oh, no, 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 no. I, 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 I do think that there's some connection, but what I'm saying is like, I'm not jumping on any team. I just refuse to do it. My, my I team, know that about you. I think uh, my team is right there. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. 
and the, the thing that I swore an allegiance to, which is a freaking piece of parchment that's 240 well, years old. I'll take it a step further. That Stars and Stripes, that's the team that I'm yeah. for. And I keep telling people that in this country, and I know this for a fact, um, we're so free that we don't even know how free we are. Exactly. And that's part of the problem. We have first world problems. We're, we're not worried about putting dinner on the table or, but, you know, we can, we can literally call DoorDash or Uber Eats or something and, and have everything delivered. I can have groceries delivered to my, I don't have to go anywhere. I can get anything I want off of Amazon. Um, I don't even have to leave my house if I don't want to. Yeah. So the reality is, is that we don't have the problems that other countries have. And I, I wish that more people could spend time, even at just a month overseas somewhere, because I think they would have such a greater appreciation of the team that we have in this country. Well, that's what I was going to, I went on the diatribe this time, but that's what I was trying to get at with your childhood upbringing in down South and um, your time with the units that you spent. Do you see, or do you think any of the guys you served with who are of either black or Hispanic see what we're seeing out in the real world as a reflection of reality? Or do you, do you think that like this is not contrived, but people are overreacting because we've been in lockdown? There's certainly, there's certainly a, a sense of uh, pent up aggression in young people. Okay. They're not working. They're jo- a lot of young people work in jobs that have been taken away, like the restaurant industry or the entertainment industry. So if, if I was young in my 20s right now, I'd have a lot of pent up aggression too. I'll tell you that just straight off the bat, just because uh, I would feel like my my dreams are being, you know, hamstrung at this point. I'm not moving forward. I'm just stagnant, and that that pisses anybody off, right? So, uh, and that and the thing is, is that that's not that's not just happening to black people or Hispanic people. That's happening to everybody right now, all colors, right? So. Um, some of the rioting or whatever that it may, it may be some pent up aggression, but I also think it's more orchestrated and uh, coordinated than that. Uh, We're seeing that more and more, and I don't know where the coordination is coming from, but it's also in very specific places that they're, they're targeting, right? Uh, When an incident happens, it may happen for a little while in that city, but for the most part, these th- things are happening in, in certain places. And I, I, I don't have an explanation for that, but I don't think it's a coincidence either. So do you think that, uh, I didn't really want to ask this question, plus your pot, this is coming out well after the election. Um, do you think it's going to get worse or better if Biden's elected in terms of the unrest? The unrest will get better if Biden's elected. If I think it'll get, well, let me say this. It's going to depend on this whole mail-in balloting thing. I think there's already people boarding up businesses for unrest after the election. I think November is going to be a very chaotic month in this country. I don't care who's elected. I think there's going to be anger on either side 
And I think that um, the, the idea that's out there right now that it's gonna be rigged in some way, shape or form, one way or the other is very real in people's minds. And so they're gonna be very angry if their candidate of choice doesn't win. And I think we're gonna see a lot of unrest. In fact, I think we might see a lot of people on people violence in November and December, um, which may escalate. I am very afraid that we're on the precipice in this country of another civil war. Which, I mean, I, I keep hearing that, and I'm I, not even, I'm not going to say naively, because, I mean, fuck it, let's go have some fun. That being said. Um, you and I can say that, but people don't really know what that means. Well, that's what I was going to get at. So when I think of civil war, you know, you have one defined frac faction against another. This is going to be something, if it does happen that way, it will be something completely different uh I, i'm thinking and i think i made a post and i think you may have liked it so i'm no i did it on twitter where i talk a lot of shit um <laughs> if you want to see me talking a lot of shit to random people follow me on twitter that being said i said basically for all you looking for another civil war it's not going to be like the french civil war it's going to be more like iraq in 2005 2006 and 2007 with a lot of heads missing and families torn apart and neighbor on neighbor type violence. It, it, that's exactly what it'll end up being because it's going to be a morph. It's not just going to be Republicans against Democrats, or it's going to be, hey, I'm disenfranchised and I don't like, I'm just, okay, hypotheticals. I'm mad because you guys were rioting. So I'm going to go try to kill anybody that I think was rioting. Uh, I don't like this group of people. So I'm going to kill those people. It's going to be a morph of all kinds of things and you're never going to know who your enemy or your friend is. And, and I mean, look at some of the people who are losing their shit over having their Trump or Biden sign stolen off their lawn. Um, which, you want to draw atten negative attention to yourself. Just go ahead and put bumper stickers on your car. Come on, people. Yeah. I mean, but people are using that as a metric to who's going to win, too. It is like, oh, my God, I've seen nothing but Biden signs. That means everyone in my neighborhood's voting for Biden. Or I've seen nothing but Trump signs. And so Trump's winning. Let's see what happens when people yeah, go to I the think, polls. I think psyops is a very real thing now with social media and instant gratification and YouTube and TikTok and whatever else people are using. I think that the world is full of psyops. There's messages being implanted in our brains every day. And I don't know. I mean, nobody I, knows who's going to win. I, I value your, your thoughts on that because, I mean, Though we've had similar starts, you've had a lot more specialized training outside of your rate in things that may or may not fall into that category, um, doing what you did. So I, when you say something like that, it, it holds a lot of value to me. And Yeah, I mean, I, I just see it in the way that we were trained, the models that we're trained in, I see it coming at me, even on Facebook. Yeah, well, and I do... And I do wonder, though, how much of it's coordinated on the social media thing or how much of it's just activist programmers who see shit that they don't like and they have access to the code and they can just go change the algorithm without. That's what I mean, though. One way or another, it's coming at us. You yeah, know? but, but le right. more, less coordination, more individuals who are not talking. Um, almost like that, that worst case scenario with the sleeper cells. They're they're looking for one message to pop up somewhere and they're going to go do their thing completely independent of anyone else. 
Wow, that guy. No, I'm sure that you're right. I'm sure there's a lot of that going on. I, and I think it's going to get worse. I don't understand in this day and age, though, how we can have DocuSign and secure ways to do business with our banks, but we can't vote on our phone. You know, there's got to be a better way than the mail-in balloting, right? I think that's causing a lot of anxiety and a lot of this unrest right now. Uh, if If you're paying attention, and it doesn't matter what media outlet, that is one single point right now of severe anxiety on both sides of the table. This can, you know, and we've seen already some incidences of ballots being thrown away or whatever, you know, there, there's always going to be somebody trying to cheat the system, but you, you gotta be kidding me. We can't come up with a, a system to, to securely yeah. vote. Well, I think I, I like to, to remember an old saying that's don't necessarily attribute malice to what a 14 year old would consider being an asshole. And sometimes there's just, dicks who don't like the system and throw away a bunch of ballots got it yeah um that being said i gotta ask because i one you're a father and um so the kenosha thing with the uh i forgot what his name is the kid up there who had the ar who waxed two people and wounded another one written out yes from a parent standpoint you have a 17 or 16, 17 year old son who wants to go uh, literally across state lines and go with, I'll call them um, guys trying to protect stuff. What would you have said to your kid? You're stupid. What are you thinking? You're literally putting yourself into a powder keg. Why would you go? We used to have a term when we'd enter a house. Um, called Red Rocket. Anybody yelled Red Rocket, you found the nearest window and dove out of it. It meant there was an explosive device in there and you didn't know if it was going off or not, right? You didn't know if it was command detonated or if it was cell phone activated, but you heard Red Rocket, you got the hell out of the nearest entrance as fast as possible. To me, sending a 17-year-old with an AR into that situation or allowing that kid. Now, I'm sure his parents didn't allow him to. I no, don't apparently it's come out in evidence that she drove him to the riot. So, so I highly disagree with that methodology. First of all, you and I both know that males frontal lobes don't even fully develop until about 24 years old. Yeah. Now you're asking a kid that's put into a highly volatile, highly uh, emotional situation to make split-second decisions who's the wrong color to be there in the first place with a gun and the outcome's going to be good. Not in a thousand years, man. That's just, that's like, that's like when you put a, a political sign in your yard, you're announcing to people what side you're on. You're inviting people to, it's, it's a, it's a sign that the opposite side can come and mess with. Yeah, well, I used to be a big fan of open carry, thinking in, in my head it was this way people know not to mess with me. But now in retrospect, um, yeah, it, it, you're, you're also flagging yourself for if you do get into an active shooter situation, the first bullet's going to you. Mm-hmm. You've already identified that you're a threat to the threat. 
and and not only that, you know, you said that right, a threat to the threat. So the threat is going to take out the biggest threat first. Yeah. However, you're not even thinking about the kind of anxiety that it creates in people that see the gun and don't know you from Adam. That's true. And too. They may perceive you a certain way just on how you look. They people judge based on appearances, and they they might think, okay, this is a dangerous. I have a, a good friend of mine and his wife doesn't want him hanging out with me because I have guns. And she perceives that as me being a potential murderer. So I don't know now where that, that is an enormous, out. enormous jump, right? Yeah. A huge, enormous jump. But we've had that conversation because I was, we, I was wondering if I had done something to piss him off. And he said, look, I just got to be honest with you. And, Hopefully she doesn't listen to this podcast because I've been I've kept that a secret because I don't want to ruin. Yeah. Well, you haven't said who it is, so. No, I haven't. But but that that is is my point. Open carrying somewhere invites a lot of different judgments and opinions, and no one knows you or what you've done or how you've done it. Or so there could be, uh, and businesses these days are also anti-gun carrying anyway. They don't want you carrying it. So, yeah, I'm a proponent of being uh, silent but deadly. I muted the mic because the train was coming and I got my mouse isn't working right. Okay, so, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And so in that situation, I we can argue self-defense or not uh, for the kid. But I do feel like there should be some sort of uh, something to the parents. Hundred percent. Yeah. And 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 uh, that that poor seventeen-year-old at that point, I don't know what happened leading up to that. Nobody really does. Why he was getting chased, or I don't know. But I can only imagine that there was just sheer fear in him. He's got no training. Yeah. I mean, he shot well, apparently. Well, from the videos I saw, I mean, he, he, he did muzzle control, but he did. did. And, and there was people attacking him with skateboards and somebody did have a Glock, but we don't know what happened leading up to that. Right. Don't go put yourself in a situation. If you're asking me as a dad, I'm advising my daughters. Don't, don't intentionally put yourself in a place where something that serious could go sideways it's not worth it it's not it's just not worth it sir part of part of being smart and surviving and not being part of darwin's group is knowing you know when to and when not to do things knowing when to engage and when not to you may be i mean i've learned some fighting skills over the years. That doesn't mean that I want to get in a fight with somebody. Right, right, right. That, I'm going to avoid that. I'm going to try to de-escalate that every time. And, and first of all, I've seen enough violence in my life that I know that it doesn't lead to anything good ever, right? Uh, uh, I, I try to love people more than I than anything these days. That's a good First thing. of all, part of that is therapy to me. Make it make makes up for some of the guilt that I have, right? So I have a guilt complex a little bit, some survivor's guilt, and uh, and so I feel like doing good, giving back, loving on folks is is how I can achieve that versus 
trying to drag them down or um, put them in a box. Unfortunately, it's so hard in 2020, man. It is. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, this is a year that's going to change a lot of the future, I think. Yeah, in a big, in a big way, in yeah. a big way. Yep. So what's your hope for 2021? <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, there's also going to be an unrest in 2021 because I don't believe that Joe Biden's going to be able to finish his term. I think they're going to have to invoke the 25th, and I think they already know that. Uh, I know that's a conspiracy theory, but the man just doesn't seem healthy mentally. Well, and, again, uh, take, take, take it from your clinical background. If this was a, a tribal leader in, Afga yeah. in Afghanistan trying to take a position to oversee a village, and some of the elders came and said, what do you think? No, I would, I absolutely, from what I see from afar, he's not, um, he's not capable of being the president of the United States. And I, I think that uh, he's got to take large times in between uh, appearances of rest. That's classic age-related dementia stuff right there, you know? Um, so we know that he's probably, he's, he's only seeking one term anyway. He stated that. So I think that if he's pulled out of the presidency, there will be more unrest again um, from both sides. And I'll, because she was not a popular candidate. Yeah, I don't think she won one delegate. She didn't. So it'll be from both sides because people are going to ask themselves what nefarious group put this person in the White House now. You know, both sides are going to start having their yeah. own conspiracy theories. <laughs> Yeah, it's, but but let's assume that things go. Uh, I don't want to say better, but what's your best hope for twenty twenty one? I think that my best hope for twenty twenty one is that people get their head around the fact that we're living with COVID now, and things uh, open back up, and that we get closer to herd immunity. I think that's really critical. If we come up, if we do come up with a vaccine, I think that'll jumpstart that herd immunity. Um, the more people that have antibodies running through their bodies, the less of a problem COVID will be. So I want to touch on that part real quick. So I recently uh, watched a video with a Swedish doctor. He made a very, very distinct and interesting point that I had forgot about, your innate immune, immune system. He's like, you don't need to have the antibodies to have immunity. And, and your T and B and uh, natural killer cells know when to activate when it comes in. Yes, you'll still be infected, but they'll be able to mitigate the infection. And he was also talking about, um, oh God, I just lost my train of thought with that. But yeah, that and the simple fact that, um, oh, the DNA of, or the RNA of COVID or SARS-CoV-2, unlike the flu, even though it's been mutating, it still has a large amount of other coronavirus uh, RNA that we actually, though this is a brand new strain of coronavirus, we do know what a, our bodies know what a coronavirus is and to some extent know how to deal with it. Yes. And, and the protein spikes of this variant were, were what made it so virulent. But you're right. You know, a lot of people don't realize there's two different kinds of viruses there's RNA viruses and DNA viruses. And uh, the, the worst of the viruses in the world tend to be RNA, like Ebola, Marburg, 
et cetera, et cetera. Uh, SARS um, is also an RNA vi uh, virus. And you're right, the more that we're exposed to different variants of it, that innate uh, immunity is gonna recognize, even if we don't have the strain of the shot that's coming around or whatever, right? Um, that leads me into uh, questioning this new company though, Moderna. I don't know if you've done any research into how they're doing their they're, vaccine. They're doing the uh, the monoclonal one. Yeah, right? that's correct. So they're introducing uh, they're introducing RNA um, into cells, but let's keep it simple here. Basically what that's gonna do is make human 2.0. I don't know that I'm really excited about that. Uh, messing around with your RNA sequence and the way that it produces code, what is that? What? Well, you know, there's, there is something um, really interesting um, that I caught on a documentary and then some studies that um, tons of retroviruses have made humanity possible. Uh, that there was a retrovirus about 5 million, 10 million years ago that basically made for any live or yeah, live birth uh, babies from mammals possible because of, it, it basically set the code in the DNA to do placentas. Um, so many other things, I forgot, I totally forgot what some of the other ones was, but that placenta one, oh, stem cells from several million years ago were a product of a viral infection that basically um, turned on the ability through the rewriting the DNA to have stem cells. So you're right, it literally, depending on what it's rewriting or reprogramming, could change a lot of things. It could change a lot, but now it's in the hands of a human that's, that's yeah, I kind of like nature better <laughs> what's that I like nature better I do too man I'm not real I'm not real keen on that particular vaccine I would I think I'd rather go with one of the other ones but so are you going to be the first in line uh no because um, you you and I went through swine flu mm -hmm. vaccine um and I don't know did you get the anthrax or no I did I've I never been an anti-vaxxer and I've never been like super conspiracy theory about vaccines, um, <clears throat> but I'm also healthy. And I know that if I got the annual flu that I would still live through it, just like if I got COVID. Yeah, I might have even already had, I don't know. We never know, right? Some people are asymptomatic. So uh, just like your antibody test was inconclusive. Yeah, I love that one. <laughs> well, no, the reason why I was uh, asking about the, the, uh, God, the vaccination was because, I mean, I, I'll tell you my stance is there's a reason why vaccines take 10 years to yes. come out because it's not making the, at no point after they hit phase three trials, are they really tweaking the vaccine? They're just watching for unforeseen side effects. That's right in population and, groups that they haven't tested before. And I'm willing to wait to around five or six personally. And it's not, it's not um, anti-vax. It's just, I wouldn't trust a can of Coke that came out with a new formula. Yeah, um, I agree. And anywhere. by that time we're, and if they're working, we're closer to herd immunity at that point anyway. So you're less yeah. at risk every day. People are getting vaccines that are working, but if they aren't working, 
I don't need any more disabilities than I already have. Dude. I don't need to wake up with a dick on my forehead. Literally. I don't know. That, that might be kind of fun, dude. Uh, too many hands going into different places. <laughs> but I, on that note, man, so I call this, I call the channel Modern Ronin. And basically, I kind of feel like there's a lot of us out there that fall into that the traditional term, not the Hollywood version of what a Ronin is. Someone who's left serving, in their case, a master. But with us, we've left service. And sometimes we feel like we didn't finish our service or that we could do more to serve. So what would that mean to you? Well, oh, man, I struggle with this. I've got a friend that just started a security company. And uh, he's... Uh, and it primarily does um, work. And so, so this is, you know, okay, I'll preface this. Bad angel, good angel, okay? I, Ernest Hemingway once wrote that after having hunted man in battle that everything else on the earth becomes boring. And there's a certain part of that that's absolutely true and it's, uh, kind of a sick thought process. But for those people that have engaged in battle and done battle and hunted people, there's a certain part of you that is always, I don't wanna say gonna miss it, but that feeling you can never get anywhere else ever, right? Yeah. That, that's a sickness to say to say that, but but it's true. So, so there's always this desire maybe to go back. You're always thinking about, okay, all right, my friend started a security company. I can do private security for rich people. I can get rich and I can still carry a gun. And like, maybe the opportunity will come up. It's a disgusting way of thinking, right? But it's the truth. It's in my head sometimes. Like I miss that excitement that, that I'm going to die today. I might die today. Uh, there's no, there's no substitute for that. But at the same time, uh, when you say give back, I also, you know, I, I have a lot of these bracelets. Uh, I don't like to forget the fallen. And so I feel like I have to live my best life. And that best life isn't to pursue and chase uh, adrenaline and um, anger and violence. It's to, um, like I'm doing with this football team, try to give the best version of myself and my values to some six-year-olds so that they can grow up and not be heathens, but try to live their best life. Uh, teach them about going outdoors. Teach them about, you know, building a fire. My kids, both of them, uh, we work on building fire in the backyard, believe it or not. Nice. Uh, it's, I want them to have skills. If nothing else, then like my youngest daughter will tell you, I'm training for survivor daddy. <laughs> <laughs> the show on TV. Yeah. But the reality is, is that I, I'm making it a game to them. Hey, let's go play out in the yard and try to make fire with these sticks. But the reality is, is I'm giving them a skill that they may need someday. Um, I, I have, uh, their mom doesn't know this, but I've skinned a squirrel with them in the backyard. I've taught them how to do that because I think it's important that they know how to dress an animal, right? Yeah, and if you can dress a small one, you can dress a big one. Yeah. So uh, 
they're not afraid of animals. I've taught them not to be afraid of bugs and um, uh, like when we go to the pool, if there's a wasp in the pool, I've taught them how to pick that wasp up out of the and hold it in their hand until it dries off and flies away. And they know that thing's not going to sting them. Um, I don't want them to be scared of life. And so I think when you're talking about that, that's giving back part of your knowledge that you've gained through all these experiences to the young people today and trying to impart to them that things aren't as bad in this world as everybody around you is trying to make it seem right now. Yeah, We're just not. that's important. We're, I, I, we're alike than we are different and if you open your eyes you'll see that and you know let go of some of the the anger and just talk share a beer under the stars away from the tv all these things all these these phones and tvs and things that are in our life these days it is creating uh, a whole new dynamic of stress in people that's not healthy We've gotten away from what humanity lived like, like you said, for 99.9% of our history. And uh, it's, it's killing us is what it's doing. I, I 100% agree. And on the technology thing, um, I've always been a big fan. Uh, that, let me rephrase that. I've been a big fan of the idea of how we came home from World War II uh, instead of jumping on a plane and being back in your bedroom 20 hours later, taking the boat back. And I, the worst thing I thought that we could have had in Camp Fallujah was the internet. Oh, God. People having real-time conversations, finding out that their girlfriend cheated on them, that yeah. whatever. Just I, And it's even worse now with technology. Yeah, because they can have their phones yeah. with them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I agree with you a hundred percent on all of that. Well, ship, we have done, I think another three hours. Yeah, we have. And I've got, uh, about 40 minutes to football. Well, go, go enjoy your football. I'm going to end the, uh, the recording. I just want to say thank you for coming back on again, man. It means a lot to me. I've enjoyed it. And, uh, we should, uh, you know, we'll face to face it. Soon. Uh, you know, let's follow up in 21 when things have, uh, Oh yeah. Rest. Yeah. Definitely. How, uh, yeah. It'd be, it'd be interesting, man. You know, I definitely. love you. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was an honor. No worries. Thank you again. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, the modern Ronin on Twitter at Tommy chase. one. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.